behind me beneath the red tinted sky. That is what's left of Raccoon City. Our platoon is cut off. No survivors found. gonna die. Wait, don't shoot! Down! I lost all my men because of her! You're listening to the Crimson Head Elder Podcast, Survival Horror Edition, with special guest star, actor for Barry Burton in Revelations 2, Michael McConaughey. That'd be me. Welcome to the show. You know, we're all actors here. There's there's nothing going on. We're all the same. And inside, I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is so cool. It was so very real and so very pulled back, restrained, so much that was not said and was not done. It's a challenge. And that's from the same realm where Barry yeah, yeah. is coming. You don't know what you meant to me when I was a kid growing up. <laughs> oh, wow. <clears throat> you changed something so incredibly established at your peril. It may be a tremendous success, but you're really taking a chance. That's the case with anything that has the kind of legs that this franchise has. Why don't you watch a nice love story? Some emotions. I got emotions in my own life. I want to see something that gives me hope for the future that says we are going to go someplace glorious. And those are the places specifically with the emotion where I needed a little guidance because I didn't have the relationships. I know my daughter's a foul mouth. Oh, my word. You know. <laughs> Three generations of a family come up at the same time. Toddler and grown human being and older human being and all of them affected by what I was so fortunate to have been a part of at this point a long time ago. But it's something that still speaks to them today.
Welcome to the Crimson Head Elder podcast showcasing survival horror. We are very proud to be the first website to interview any of Capcom's actors for Resident Evil Revelations 2. And for this world premiere, there was only one man we could bring to our mansion. Michael McConaughey, industry legend and figurehead, anime and video game voice actor, film actor, voice director, script writer, casting director, and of course, actor for Barry Burton. Welcome to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. Thank you. But damn, you make me sound like someone. Thanks. <laughs> very, very pleased to be here. Really, really happy about this. Well, before we delve right into the questions, Michael, I just wanted to say off the bat, thank you so much for joining us. And you've been so amenable from the start and so open to all these fan questions. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It really is. Joining myself tonight, George Trevor, we have Mr. Spencer. Good evening, everyone. You're kind of freelance now, aren't you? You're sort of Project Umbrella, Crimson Head Elder. You're, you're, you're all over the place at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I sort of wander around. And, you know, I, I tend to involve myself with fans on an individual level rather than big communities and sites. And from Crimson Head Elder, we have staff member Albert Wesker187. Good afternoon, everybody. Okay, so thanks, Michael. Thank you so much for being with us. Hundreds of your fans all, all across the world have, have come to Crimson Head Elder to post questions in our forum for you. Bloody Eye from Missouri. He asks, were you aware of the Resident Evil franchise before being approached for this role? Of course I was. It, it's not without a little notoriety. But, and let me start the heartbreak right now. I don't play games. <laughs> I, I am not a gamer. That is where I work. Which is not to say that I'm totally unaware of what's going on, but I don't play. It's uh, like that old, uh, from uh, Star Trek IV, when the uh, the young lady's asking uh, Captain Kirk, says, oh, wait, don't tell me, you're from outer space. He says, no, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. <laughs> oh, that was the, uh, the voyage home, wasn't it, with the whales? Yes, indeed. It would be like a busman's holiday. There are, of course, some, some games which stick with you more than others. But if I played every game I work in, I would have to be 500, and I'd be a little creaky at the other end of that curve. I did play games earlier on. I like the text-based games with, with the puzzles, and although some of them were just excruciatingly difficult because it all depended on the mindset of the person who was writing the thing. And then for a while, I spent a lot of time just sitting around drooling and playing Doom. <laughs> and, uh, and after a while, I said, okay, that's enough of that. And then I started working more in games. and. I sort of had then to change my sights a little bit because it's like crawling down a rabbit hole and disappearing. There is so much out there. Mm. So as far as the original question here, sorry, I was aware of the franchise because how could you not be? So many people talk about it, are involved with it, and are really passionate about it. But I don't know it on a firsthand basis. I did not before I did the game. I got a little more familiar afterward. It's interesting you mentioned the text-based games. We've been lucky enough to have Peter Jessup, voice of Albert Wesker, with us. Like yourself, he started playing those text-based games, which kind of have a parallel with the early Resident Evil games, very much atmosphere-based game rather than a focus on the combat. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, moving on. Morpheus Duval from Brazil. He asks, did Capcom make you aware of just how iconic the Barry Burton character was within Resident Evil folklore? If so, how much of his biography from the other games did they provide you with? Well, um, the short answer is no and nothing. Um, (laughs) they, uh, They very specifically did not want to color what I was doing with any preconceptions, uh, approaching it actually from a much more cinematic point of view in this game. Uh, so basically, I, I came in as a serious, dramatic actor, and they very purposely did not want me to try to invest any flavor of any previous performance. So they didn't give me any. I read a little bit afterward, after because during the course of the production, we had four or five sessions, rather lengthy sessions. And uh, during the course of that, I would ask the Capcom team, you know, for context in a particular thing. But we were very careful not to give me much of anything which might influence what they were doing with this version. And now, Michael McConaughey reads in character as Barry Burton from the Resident Evil Revelations 2 file, Town Residence Note. Another note, what's this one say? Your father hasn't come home at all since going to the monument. I tried to wait, but I can't do it any longer. I've gone off to look for him. I was feeling pretty anxious, but everyone there was so nice to me. They told me something nasty was going around, so they gave me a preventative shot and this bracelet that they said would help protect me. This place is so large and wondrous, I've never seen anything like it. Of course, this is probably no big deal for her. She saved our island. I'm starting to feel like she can do anything. I regret ever doubting her. I suppose it's nothing, but I've been feeling a bit dizzy. Maybe I'm just stressed. Oh, and I finally found your father. Well, part of him, anyway. I always knew he had a good head on his shoulders. Now that's all that's left of him. I can't possibly bring him back like this. This bracelet has been making strange sounds. It's a little annoying. But don't you worry, I'm going to find the rest of your father and we're coming home. You must be so hungry. Jesus. You would have thought with such a figurehead character from the series that Capcom, as a developer, as the custodian holding the integrity of the game, you would have thought, would you not, that they would have wanted some consistency, at least with the voice, or how Moira is very much family-orientated with his daughter in the game, that they would have even made you aware of, of, of Barry's basic biography with his daughters and his marriage? No, no. And you have to understand, in a franchise like this, every time there's a new game or an expansion or something, you've got a new producer. And every producer, generally speaking, will have a different viewpoint on what they want to do. It's like when, in a series of films like the Bond films, each new film will generally have someone else driving it. And so there will be changes uh, as everyone tries to make the franchise their own, which is not necessarily a negative thing. So I don't know who was specifically driving this version of the game, but it was uh, an attempt 
as they explained to me, to be much more cinematic about it, to um, not drive it so much uh, with a splatter, although there is certainly a little amount of splatter to be found. But they wanted the performances to be more grounded and uh, a little more photorealistic, if you will. Even though you only got very little information about Barry Burton, you still did a heck of a job portraying him. He had his little funny lines you usually did in the original Resident Evil. So even though you had very little information to go on, you still did a hell of a performance. Well, thank you. But uh, so much of that is in the dialogue to begin with. And I have to say the uh, the lady who was directing me, a very lovely lady called Chris Zimmerman Salter, I was very circumscribed. But this was so much more restrained than my usual performance. It was it was really hard work. She knew what she wanted, and when I started pulling some crap, she would yank my chain and pull me back. Wesker. She's so scary. I can't stand her. Who? The woman here with Wesker? That is Wesker. Alex Wesker. Two Weskers? You gotta be shitting me. <laughs> Alex! Alex Wesker. <laughs> you can't be the same woman. Where's Moira? What have you done with her? And the rest of them beneath a mountain of fear and despair. You. You killed her. of Capcom maybe being remiss with, with this information. So in terms of what you may have felt you wanted to take on yourself, the Oracle Dragon from Pennsylvania, she asks, had you seen gameplay scenes from the first original 1998 game or perhaps the 2002 remake or even studied the past portrayal of Barry in order to familiarise yourself with the role and understand why there's just so much affection within the community for this character? My, what a lovely question, too. And obviously the answer is no, not until after the fact. Uh, once the thing was done and everyone said they were happy with how it had turned out, then I I hit YouTube and then I saw some of the seminal scenes and saw some of the comments from the fans and realized just how iconic Barry Burton really was. Had I been fully aware of that at the beginning, I think I might have tried a little too hard. So I believe the uh, the decision by the production team to keep me more or less in the dark was a valid choice. If, in fact, I, I wound up doing it effectively, 
I did think there were parallels with Ed Smaran's portrayal of Barry Burton in Remake. So it's interesting to hear that you weren't asked to voice match, because I think the voice just matched the character perfectly for me. Yeah, I agree. The voice did match him perfectly. So the character was driving the actors, <laughs> and that's the most perfect, uh, perfect way to put it. And when that happens, then the performance is going to be so much better. I will say it was uh, it was very good casting as well because when you think about Barry Burton, he's meant to be an older, wiser. You know, he's got a very sort of commanding presence in his voice. You know, he's got a very sort of uh, mature kind of wisdom about him. The casting choice they made with picking you for that role was spot on because your voice does your know, your natural voice does possess that sort of older depth about it, worldly. Oh, I like that worldly. I'm going to be worldly now. <laughs> Are you sure you're just not calling you an old man? <laughs> it's, a, it's a very circumspectly uh, phrased way in which to do it, so congratulations. <laughs> I do try. <laughs> so moving on to our next question, we've got myself, George Trevor from the West Country of England, and I'd like to know, do you see any value in keeping a character's voice actor consistent through a series of game sequels? And if a change in actor is to be had, do you feel it necessary to any degree to voice match with the previous incumbent? Um, all right. Two edges to that sword. Yes, I, I can make a case for the value of keeping casting consistent throughout a, a franchise like this. Because the fans want consistency. They grow to love a character. That's the character they want. I do a lot of audiobooks, and a couple of years ago, I was brought in to replace, for a series of books by uh, Michael Connolly about Harry Bosch, detective police thing. And they'd been using an actor who had done it for 13, 14 books, and then they brought me in. Obviously, different approach entirely. I was pilloried. Language I wouldn't even tell my cat. <laughs> it was... <laughs> I could not have been more vilified in any any circumstance I can think of because I wasn't what they were used to. Yeah. In terms of the acceptance, the change was so radical. It pretty much destroyed that particular audiobook. Uh with all due respect to myself, it wasn't because the work was bad. It was just different. And the comfort level in in that sort of consistency cannot be discounted. All right. That's the one blade. Uh, the other edge is that this game, from what, I, uh, what I've been able to see after the fact, is a bit of a departure. It is so much more cinematic. Uh, it is going from the very first versions of the game through this one. There's been an evolution in how the game is constructed, how it runs, basically how it feels. From what I've been able to see, you you can tell me whether or not I'm I'm correct in that because I uh, I am not the all-knowing font of knowledge here. Would you agree that the game has changed that much from the from the initial versions in its approach? That's particularly interesting with regard to Revelations too, because you mentioned changing producers, and there were effectively two development teams: one that were handling the main title Resident Evil games five, six, and now seven that have taken a very much more combat-orientated approach that bear no resemblance at all to Resident Evil 1, 2, and 3, and it's a massive debate within the community whether that's a good or a bad thing. Whereas Revelations, the first game, and now Revelations 2, it was Capcom's way of listening to the fans, unfortunately not the fans that pay the bills, a smaller but louder 
minority of fans who love the survival horror, the atmosphere-driven game uh, that's not combat-orientated. And Revelations 2 was a return to that. It feels to me like Capcom is trying to cater to as many different and varied audiences as possible. Mm. And there is a good side to that in the, you know, you try to get as many people in as possible, right? Cast a big net. Mm -hmm. The downside is that by doing that, you kind of water the game down somewhat because it loses its sense of identity then that it established with those earlier games. Mm -hmm. And then it's all over. One one game you've got where it's very sort of survival horror based. And there's another game where it's a co-op shooter. And there's a sense of schizophrenia about the series. It doesn't know what it wants to be. Yeah. And it's trying to cater to as many different audiences as possible. And, you know, the old saying, uh, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Mm -hmm. That's where I fear the series might be in the future. And just consider how many people really like vanilla. You can't offend someone by giving them vanilla. You might bore them, but you can't defend them, really. And unfortunately, it goes to the the financial aspect of this entire uh, industry. And it has gotten to the point some years ago where the income from a game can be so much greater than from a film. Uh, there are some studios that uh, are involved with games, and their their games are making more money than their films. With a game, especially with a game franchise, you know you've got a core audience who's going to buy the game. You don't know that with a movie. Because That's it's not true. established. It's not been established yet. Correct. It's, it's a risk. And a lot of studios are scared of making risks. They don't want to take yeah. that chance. They want something that's going to be comfortable, something that's going to be you know average. Like It's why Titanic, for example, it's why that succeeded on so many levels and was really popular. Because it aimed for average and it hit the nail on the head. And it made millions. Mm-hmm. Going back to the question you asked, um, yeah, I mean, the series has taken a wide variety of turn. I mean, there's been a lot of different from survival horror to to action games. For me, that's fine because like my motto in the website is change the law of life for those who live in the past and the present are certain to miss the future. So whenever something changed, like in a video game, for example, I, I can actually I can actually play every single game. Revelations 2 went back to that survival horror aspect as well. And, and it, there wasn't that much action. I mean, it was a really, really good game. But for me, the change and the, the change of the games is something I can actually get used to because of my model. You know, I like change. I get used to things very quickly. You know, I still enjoy the series very, very much. You could argue that Resident Evil today is kind of shifting more towards the Call of Duty audience. Mm-hmm. It's definitely become more action-orientated. And I'm sure that Michael could see that as well. The tone of it has changed. Well, maybe what we need to do is cobble together right? A sort of nasty hybrid, you know, the uh, the call of evil, <laughs> which is better than Resident Duty, I think. <laughs> the action is the biggest sales point in, in games right now, really. And it's reflected in the films we see as well. And the games are taking on more the aspect of the films that we see so that every every new game really has the possibility of being a blockbuster. If Obviously, they can get uh, get the audience to continue buying it. But I, I, I am interested to hear that it that you said actually it's gone. Would you say it's gone full circle? Has it gone a full 360? Are we eating our own tail here and arrived back where we were before, only with higher quality? It's very interesting you say that, Michael, because we started out in survival horror. You know, we had Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 1. Mm. 
and yet they've announced an upcoming remake mm. of Resident Evil 2. And this is where the habit of remakes comes in. A remake is a surefire bet to make a lot of money. You take up an old popular game that people enjoy in the series and you remake it. People generally will like a remake. Generally. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, as soon as Michael asked that question, I thought straight to Resident Evil 2. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a huge debate within the community, Michael, as to whether that it's a good or a bad thing. Many who think, even that think it will be a good thing if it is a survival horror based game like the original Resident Evil 2, just don't expect it. Uh, and, and, and again, think that it's a very naive view to think that it's going to be brought out in ex- with exactly the same pace and same slow atmosphere and same atmosphere driven mechanics. Uh, not focused on the combat with puzzles, cerebral puzzles that perhaps the modern gamer just doesn't have the patience for. So we'll see what happens with that remake, what, what, what it will be like. Nostalgia plays a big role. People get you know nostalgic about not just the games, but uh, what you said before, Michael, about how a certain voice actor, it's like, that's the voice actor I remember for this character, that's the voice actor I like. And you build this kind of sense of allegiance or loyalty almost to the point where they don't like it when that person is replaced or changed. Richard War, who voiced uh, Wesker, yeah. uh, when he was replaced by DC Douglas, mm. there, was, there was a huge backlash. There was a massive yes. backlash in the community about that. You change something so incredibly established at your peril. It may be a tremendous success, but you're really taking a chance. That's the case with anything that has the kind of legs that this franchise has. Because there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people involved with this bunch of games because of the characters, because of what it's meant to them, because of the sheer breadth of this particular universe that you've created. The Oracle Dragon asks, were there particular challenges in voicing a returning series icon like Barry, knowing the legacy he has, and also having been played previously by up to four other actors? Well, I was a bit protected because I was shielded from that and then joined Don't Go Doing Any Research until afterward. And then when I did go back and see what had been done, what what some of the the players had to say about it, what they liked about the games. I would have been quite daunted to have known that up front. It really would have, would not have helped me. So I think to answer your question, Oracle Dragon, it was scary after the fact, because it's uh, that's that's a, a rather large and heavy responsibility to carry. And I'm glad I didn't know it up front. It would have put such a weight on your shoulders knowing that, because you would have gone in and maybe been influenced by what you've read, that sort of thing. Like you said, you, know, you would have probably tried to try too hard to fill those boots. I guarantee I would have overthought everything I was doing. And it wouldn't have been an organic performance. It, it would have been much more studied. And uh, I think what we, what we got out of it, what Chris directed me into, was, was a very natural and organic and real more real than it would have been otherwise. Yeah, very much in keeping with the tone that they wanted for Revelations 2, looking back at the past survival horror, that how you play Barry, it is slightly avuncular in, in his dialogue with Natalia. I wouldn't say low-key, but it's it's not bombastic. It's not over the top. And even in the moments of combat, there's like real emotion. 
there was emotion, you know, and then especially when he finds out that when Alex Wesker tells him that Moira's dead, he's sad and he's got Natalia on her back. And he's talking about when Moira, when he used to do that with Moira and all that. And there's a lot, there's like a lot of emotions coming from Barry. And now, again, reading exclusively for the Crimson Head Elder podcast, Michael McConaughey reads in character from another iconic Resident Evil Revelations 2 file email from Barry to Chris. Email. Necessary evil. Hey, Chris. I heard you just got back from Africa. Some crazy shit went down there. Glad to hear you're okay. And better yet, you brought Jill back. When I heard the news, I was so happy I could have done cartwheels down the street. Not that my knees would allow for that kind of thing anymore. I mean, after all the shit the three of us have been through, you know, we gotta look out for each other. Watch each other's backs. But I don't have to tell you the value of having a good partner, now do I? Well, you just got back, so you need some time to recover. Take it easy, you hear? If I hear you've been hitting the gym again, I'm gonna come down and kick your ass personally. I know things are gonna be a bit crazy for a while for you and Jill. But when you're both settled in, let's all go out for a drink or something. It's been too long. Barry. When I started, I didn't have any other actors. Early on in the production schedule, there are no other performances to work off of, to react from. And that must be quite a particular challenge for a game like Revelations 2, where you are co-op. You know, you're spending your whole time with an actress uh, mm-hmm. who's playing Natalia. Which is where the skill of a good director comes into play, because Chris gave me what I needed to make it sound more believable. And it's always a a shock to me after the fact to hear how something comes together. And it comes together amazingly well. It was Alex Wesker. She's responsible for the experiment six months ago. They called her the Overseer. She took Moira away from me. And now I'll never get... And all for fucking what? I'm sorry. It's okay. She said she was going to be reborn. Reborn how? With the virus? Why did she need my little girl? It doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. I can't remember anything else. <laughs> oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. It's my problem, not yours. Just take it easy. I was just thinking about how I used to go for walks like this with Moira and Polly. Were you a good family? (laughs) We tried to be. Moira and I fought a lot. Even after she grew up. Was it because she used bad words? (laughs) No. She just did that to take me off. I'm the one that drove us apart. I messed up real bad as a father. She and Polly were playing in the house. I forgot to lock up my guns, and Moira, sh- Polly had an accident. Was it Moira's fault? No, it was mine. But I raised my voice at her, and 
I guess I never really got around to taking the blame. Holly survived, thank God. But not me and Moira. We started drifting apart. I think she still loved you. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. I'll tell you this much. I couldn't save her, but I'm gonna save you. I promise I'll get you off this island. I know. Thanks, Barry. Now, we've got a question from you. It's a bit surreal. I'm going to be asking it for you. But... That's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> Albert Wesker187 from Texas. He asks, what originally got you interested in acting? What was your big break that got you noticed within the industry? And then how did you make that leap into a consistent professional acting career? Um, actually, acting is something I always wanted to do since I was a kid. Uh, starting out with school plays, theater, that sort of thing. I dabbled in radio for a while, went into the service way back when, came out of that, back into radio, said, no, 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 I, I want to be an actor. Damn it. <laughs> I want to get up there and, you know, say lines and stuff. Uh, dangerous words. And, and like, swell and so's your old man. Uh, <laughs> if you ever, if you ever saw a music man, that that's. Uh, that's yeah, it's a reference to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I came out to California basically in 1975 and said, this is what I'm going to do. And I have not looked back since. I've been extremely fortunate. I haven't had uh, a day job now. Hmm. Don't listen to this because it give you a clue to how old I am. I haven't had a straight job, a day job for 40 years. Now, there have been some interestingly thin years, but I have been incredibly fortunate to be able to carry myself and make my life in the various uh, aspects of the entertainment industry. And uh, as an actor, it's always good to have another string to your bow. I never had uh, what I would consider to be a huge big break. You know, it's like studying and training for 20 years to become an overnight success. But I was very, very lucky uh, in the mid-80s to uh, be brought into the Transformers and G.I. Joe cartoon series. That was uh, quite, quite the deal and brought me into rubbing shoulders with people who were gods to me that I'd been listening to since I was a kid watching cartoons. Just incredible. From Transformers, Peter Cullen and Frank Welker, men and women to whom I looked with jaw-dropping adoration. But of course, you know, I, we're all actors here. There's, there's nothing going on. We're all the same. And inside I'm going, oh my God, oh my God, this is so cool. <laughs> uh, it was great. And the, the Transformers especially has been so good to me through the years. I uh, do a lot of conventions and so forth with that. And I, I have people come up to me, three generations of a family, three generations of a family group come up at the same time. I mean, toddler and grown human being and older human being and all of them affected by what I was so fortunate to have been a part of at this point a long time ago. But it's something that still speaks to them today. Mm. And uh, a, a humanity, especially in this case, since we're talking robots, that really speaks to them. And uh, I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate to have been part of that. 
The only thing that bothers me, though, is when someone with gray whiskers in his beard <laughs> comes up and says, you don't know what you meant to me when I was a kid growing up. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I just got reminded of the movie Deliverance there. You know, it just sort of spoke that sort of voice. <laughs> oh, goodness. You have been involved in so many different areas in film and anime with not just the voice acting, but the, the script writing and, and the voice directing, casting director as well. So were you particularly in, enthused for one special role? When one is starting out in this field to that degree, you just want to get another job. <laughs> to be an actor means the work when you're actually doing a job. That's the gravy. Your real job is looking for work until you get to the point far, far down the line where you're known and people will come to you for what they think you can bring to a project. But for the first half of a career, it's basically building uh, the base that you're going to be working on later. And it's uh, just takes time. And the, what you're focused on is finding where's the next job? Where's the next job? Where's the next job? And uh, depending how far afield you go, you'll wind up working at a whole lot of stuff. Uh, at one point, I was uh, working at a theme park uh, here in California, uh, wearing a pink Easter bunny suit. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Let's just remember that I was, and still am, a serious, dramatic actor. <laughs> you can put me in a pink suit if you want. Damn it, I'm still who I am. <laughs> I just got an image of you uh, in, a, in a pink body outfit quoting Shakespeare on the <laughs> stage. You know, Ibrahim is a serious dramatic actor. Did they, you know? did they at least give you a name with that role? No, that, that was just Easter Bunny. But I, I can see him now out there, ears all cock up high, saying, Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the very vault of heaven. Here, kid, want an egg? <laughs> you just imagine a little kid like... Daddy, this man scares me. It's like, uh, to be or not to be, young child. <laughs> you know? Get that bare bodkin out of here. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I've been very fortunate through all that time to uh, to do so many different things. Crimson Elder from Wales, he asks, you have an extensive background in all sorts of avenues in the acting industry, from voice acting in games, anime and animation, live action movie roles, to directing, script writing and audiobooks. Which of these genres do you enjoy the most? Which provides the most challenge and which roles are you most proud of? To choose between any one, it's like choosing between children. I can't say I... I've enjoyed one thing more than another. Some things have been easier than others, mm. but um, probably the most difficult is dubbing for uh, a Japanese anime. I've done more anime literally than I can count. I've got to go to IMDb to see what it is I've done. I don't know anymore. It is some of the most technically difficult voice acting there is. Mm. And quite frankly, it's not as remunerative as uh, other things are. I can imagine it being very difficult because, uh, see, I like uh, like spaghetti westerns, and those are all you know, they had a lot of Italian actors, and they 
you had to get like um, a guy come in who would voice over and he'd have to like go through the film, the entire like, you know, two hours of film and try and match dialogue to lip sync, uh, lip movements. And I imagine right. it's the exact same way in Japan because they may, a character in the original Japanese would be saying, you know, one certain line, and then you've got to look at that and go, right, what can I fit in there in English that would match the lip movements and would make sense for, you know, the scene, you know? So I understand that that can be, you know, very challenging for you. Oh, oh it is. And I, I write a, a lot of those adaptation scripts. Um, but even from the acting standpoint, it's still difficult, no matter how good the script is. It's, uh, you're looking, you're looking at the screen. You're keeping the line in your head. You're watching the numbers go by. You're, uh, all at the same time. It's very, very technical. Uh, and yet sometimes it can be just extremely, uh, extremely effective. But that is, that's on the one end of the bell curve. On the other one, um, say for instance, you go in to do, a commercial. I mean, one of the best things I ever had was two words in a in a TV advert, and it was, <laughs> oh well, what's so difficult about this? I should do this more often. Uh, it's it's the actor's dream. It, it's a, it's a strange and interesting existence. And I, I will say also audiobooks because I've done a lot of those. Uh, part of the question was, what's the most challenge? I did a thirty-two hour long professorial treatise on the philosophical influences of Ralph Waldo Emerson, including all of the foreign language quotations because he spoke like five friggin' languages. <laughs> 32 hours of this, which meant like three weeks in a studio. That's a lot of Emerson. Yeah, that is a lot of Emerson. It is a lot. <laughs> mm. I answered out of sequence. I thought that you had done an amazingly smooth segue into that question. <laughs> On a pro. <laughs> Paul has got a smooth way of asking questions sometimes. Yeah. And uh, that, yeah. that was very nice. I, I appreciate that. It's professional. That's what it was. Crimson Elder goes on to ask, which of your roles do you feel has received the most attention or you've received the most credit for? Because of the... Um, length of time and and the effect that it still obviously has on people the transformers yeah of course and latterly from warcraft and world of warcraft primarily the lich king and uh, the character of uther uther is is one of the what a what a thankless role in terms of his betrayal by that damned sprat arthas what was interesting is sort of like uh, played upon arthurian legend almost with excalibur mm -hmm. Except, what if Excalibur was evil and it claimed your soul? Another role as well, actually. Also in Warcraft 3, you were Kel'Thuzad. And I think they replaced you for, in, for the role of Kel'Thuzad with someone else in World of Warcraft. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, they had me too many places in the game. I have to agree with that. I, I was overexposed. Especially with the approach to most of the characters. Some of them started to blur a little bit. And that's not good. So, and if you're going to be an actor uh, for any length of time, you you are going to be replaced. You will replace others, and uh, it's it's a joke between colleagues that you know have have I done you yet? No, have you done me yet? No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the uh, the Lich King and Uther uh, from World of Warcraft that's been another big one, and now Barry. 
the attention that is being shown on this now, the uh, the affection people have for the character, mm. it's it's sort of an awesome responsibility. Crimson Elder asks, you have extensively worked in the anime film genre. Have you spent much time in Japan and do you speak the language? Uh, yes, it has been an extensive time and still continues in anime. I have worked in Japan a couple of times, but not in regard to anime. I do not speak the language. For eight or ten years, I was uh, sort of traveling the world for DreamWorks and prior to that for Warner Brothers, supervising foreign versions of their films when they're being localized into uh, the local languages around the world. So I was able to work in Tokyo a couple of times. I've been in Bangkok. I've been in Rio. It all sounds really good, but one smelly little studio is a whole lot like another one. Um, okay, so I imagine often with, with a lot of traveling, you're, yeah, you're just not seeing outside of those four walls. Right, right, right. And it uh, generally, with that, that's sort of a pace for a major film like Shrek or Madagascar or Galaxy Quest. It's 13 days working solid, then a day of travel. 13 days of work and then travel to another country. I have seen many places out of taxi windows that I really, really would like to come back and see again. <laughs> um, and just depending on how many times I've been someplace, as it turned out, for a while I was living in Phoenix, Arizona for like seven or eight years. I know my way around Helsinki, Finland better than I know how to get around Phoenix now. Crimson Elder asks, and it's my final question before I pass over to Mr. Spencer. He says that he is aware that you have many dialects and accents in your roster, and he couldn't help but notice that you have a great British, Irish and Scottish accent. He says, being Welsh myself, <laughs> uh, we won't hold that against him. <laughs> I would love to hear you add this one to your resume. Tell you what I'll do. I will work on it. I will not attempt to essay it right now, um, <laughs> but I will work on it, and I will send you a sample, and you will tell me how successful I was. And if I am, in fact, successful, it will go on the resume. How's that? Sounds like a plan. Uh, it, it takes a little little time to, to get in there fully. I mean, some things are easier than others. The hardest dialect in the world is Afrikaans. It's bloody impossible. Although I have to tell you, Leonard DiCaprio did it pretty well. Oh, yes. Uh, what was that? Blood Diamonds, I think. Blood Diamond, yeah, Blood Diamond. Amazing. I have never been able to, to get a handle on that. As far as the Welsh goes, a few weeks or a couple of months, more likely, I'll, I'll send you something, and, and you can post a critique. How's that? <laughs> oh, wow, an, an exclusive. <laughs> yeah, I'm down for that, too. So I think that uh, answers your question very nicely there, Crimson Elder. I mean, you've got to get, you're going to get Welsh delivered to you, basically, <laughs> from Barry Burton himself. So I've got a few more, a few questions here I'd like mm -hmm. to ask uh, from the uh, various members in the community. Another one from Crimson Elder, everyone's favorite Welshman. If you're not into games, what are your hobbies? You know, like favorite movies, TV shows, uh, music, etc. Television-wise, uh, and entertainment in general, I, I tend to embrace science fiction more than not, I I grew up uh, reading the golden age science fiction in the 50s of the 40s and the 50s. I don't think that if you fail to look to the future, you're doing yourself any favor. Our future is out there in the great beyond. I have 
members of my family say, why, why do you watch that stuff? I mean, it, it, it's not real. That's the point. <laughs> it's not real. <laughs> Why don't you watch a nice love story, some emotions? I got emotions in my own life. I want to see something that gives me hope for the future that says we are going to go someplace glorious. The thing is, uh, when you mention people you know that say, oh, why do you watch that sort of crap? But it's interesting because if you look at Star Trek back in like 1966 when that came out, you had like, you know, the automatic doors, you had the little sort of handheld pad things they had, the little communicators. We have that technology now. You know, we have iPads, which do the same thing as the little sort of, you know, handheld things they had in Star Trek. We've got cell phones. And close to a tricorder, yes. To me, today's fiction is tomorrow's fact. Exactly, exactly. And uh, don't forget also, uh, in regard to Star Trek, that was also the first time there was an interracial kiss on television. Oh, yes progressive mm-hmm. tv show mm-hmm. as well you know you there was and it, so much more going on didn't a couple of states in the south refuse to play that episode yeah 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 yes i'm from the south and i know that for sure people unfairly look upon it as oh it's just science fiction or whatever when really it's every episode of star trek and i'm sure you're going to agree with this michael is it's a social commentary on the real world Every episode had some kind of moral story to it. They, they, they tackled issues like racism or abortion, genocide in, in different cultures, for example. You know, There was even an episode of Star Trek where they were on a planet and it was ruled by these aliens that had basically become Nazis. You know, They converted to Nazism. Mm-hmm. And because of our interference and they believed that was the ideal way to govern sort of thing. So, and this was only 20 years or so after the second, after the second world war. So it's, it's, right. it, you know, there's so many things, levels, as you say, in Star Trek. And I think it's unfair when people sort of dismiss it as just being science fiction. The, the beautiful part of, of science fiction is that it holds a mirror up, which is distorted just enough that it's not too uncomfortable to see ourselves in. Absolutely. I mean, you're into science fiction, and I'm, I've got a little question of my own here, which kind of follows on from what Crimson Elder was saying. Do you enjoy the book Dune? Dune, yes. Dune Messiah, no. <laughs> I can't, no. I can't fault you for that. Mr. Herbert just crawled too far up his own political <laughs> pipeline for my taste. He lost track of the, the society he built in Dune was fabulously imaginative. Let's totally forget what Dino De Laurentiis did in that film, just run away from that whole concept entirely. But Herbert's book was a wondrous examination, and again, holding a mirror up to a lot of of current society, Mm -hmm. up to and including, I mean, the whole idea of the spice trade and the financial implications and how it delved, uh, devolved over in, into uh, political. Uh, it was it was a really remarkable piece of work. And then he sort of lost his focus. I would say what's interesting about it as well is that a lot of science fiction at the time focused on the technology of it. They focused yeah. on, you know, robots or androids or machines and all this sort of technology, whereas Dune focused more on less about how technology would change and how we would change, how humanity would change on a sort of a social, political level. And I found that very interesting. Uh, uh, I will say, before I move on to the next question, I've got one little question of my own. In regards to like Dune, 
let's say, for example, you were offered to play or voice a character. What character would you like to play in it? Hmm. Hmm. Well, unfortunately, I'm a bit long in the tooth for any of the uh, any of the younger ones. <laughs> I'm actually well suited these days, I think, uh, for Baron Harkonnen. But I'd say more than Emperor. Emperor yeah. Shaddam, I can see that. Possibly. Ah, been there, done that. I mean, you've been one emperor, you've been another one. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I, I've been too many slobbering old wrinkled emperors in anime. So there it is. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Back on the uh, the previous question, just very quickly for hobbies, I love to travel, which is why I feel so badly over not having been able to see the places I, I was working all those years for DreamWorks. I love to travel. I love to see new things. I do pick up languages quickly, but I forget them just as quickly. For music, uh, I listen to everything from, I, I usually have uh, classical music playing in my bathroom, new age wallpaper music playing all the time in the living room. If there's nothing else going on, I have this music uh, playing in that part of the house and it's it's sort of soothing and keeps the tone, keeps the cats from getting too obstreperous. Uh, my lady and I both, um, I can't stand having an empty house. I, I need to have music where I'm living. Yeah. And uh, I, I very much enjoy that. Um, in the car, I will, I'll switch between 60s oldies, Scottish pipes and drums, and uh, some good old dirt kicking country music. <laughs> so very, uh, very eclectic. Yeah, that's a, that's a yep. huge range. So we got another question here, again from Crimson Elder. This is on a sort of a different tack here. And he asks, what are your observations and thoughts on the state and nature of current video games? And he feels that the influx of DLC and microtransactions has become too big of a concern for developers. And a lot of content is now being cut and held back, whereas in the past it would have been included with the main game. And he cites examples like Destiny and Fallout, where they've suffered uh, in terms of storytelling because they've held back crucial, important elements of their story to sell a later date for extra cost? Uh, five words. There will always be greed. And in, in many regards, business goes past the line into greed. There's so much money to be made in this. And when you've got... The idea of deliberately withholding something so you can be charged to download it later, that's execrable. That's that's awful. It is a blatant abuse, I feel, of the people who are supporting you in your industry. I don't believe it's fair. It's It's a hell of a good business model that doesn't make it ethical or moral or right, but it's never going to change. With the microtransactions, I would, um, were I the gamer that others are, and I had to go back, and every time I went to play something, I had to pick up the same armor again, nickeled and dimed every damn time, I would be really pissed off. It's disingenuous, and it's just venal to a degree that makes me a little sick. 
I remember the days when you would go out to like a, a video game store, you put down your 40 pounds or your 60 dollars or so, and you got the game on a disc and that game was yours. You, you put down money, you get a product, right? Yeah. That's how capitalism works. You get a product out of it. You take it home. That sounded really condescending there, sorry. But, you know, you had the full game right there. But now we're at a point where you're only buying half of that product. The other half, they're going to charge you for three months down the line. That DLC is not something they've recently made. That's been made while the game was in development. They've just deliberately cut it out. Like you said, it's it's abhorrent. It's an abhorrent business practice that was based on this fallacy that, oh, piracy is harming sales, so we've got to do this in order to recoup our losses. I think that was that was nonsense, personally. Oh, it's a lovely excuse, isn't it? A tremendous justification. And, oh, incidentally, a chance to make more money. Convenient, isn't it? Very convenient yeah, how that's sort of Very works. convenient. Were you aware, Michael, that Revelations 2, the game that you worked on, was released in episodic format? So there was no physical disc. If you wanted to play the game as it was released, there were four episodes, some would say, added to the tension. Were you aware of that at all? Uh, not until after the fact. They don't tell actors a lot. And in, in terms of the release, I, when I did hear about it, I that's interesting. Um, on the one hand, you can make a case for not wanting to dilute the pool in, of, of involvement, but also it's what if someone is ready to move on and the product isn't there? Well, we're whetting their appetites. How did it feel to you? If you were, in fact, ready to move on to the uh, to the next volume, as it were, how did it feel to you to wait, to be forced to wait? You know, it's so interesting you mentioned having to wait. World of Warcraft is quite notorious for this, where mm. at the end of an expansion, the most recent expansion we had, a lot of people are very unhappy about because they charged us $10 more and we're now 18 months in from no content in the game whatsoever. 18 months of like no new content while we wait for like, the new expansion to come out. It's pretty ridiculous. Currently, they're also trying to capture the, the wave that's going to go with the Warcraft film release. They have been doing incredible amounts of production. In fact, I'm going in uh, again this coming Tuesday to do a little more Lich King for this expansion. But they, at one point last week, they were in five different recording studios with multiple stages in each one simultaneously mm -hmm. recording content. This expansion, I think, is monstrous, and they are throwing facilities at it to an amazing degree to hit whatever deadline they have, and I believe that to be very heavily influenced by the film release. When you have the the film come out, you're going to get a, a younger, fresher audience who are going to go mm -hmm. in and see that film. When they go, oh wow, that was that was really fun. That was wait, there's a game based on this. I've got to play this game, and there's your new audience coming in. So it makes a lot of sense to me. But before I get bogged down again in this, I've got to move on to the next question, and this is from uh, our very own George Trevor. He asks, the earlier games in the series felt far more influenced by Japanese culture and Japanese video game styles than the recent releases, which uh, Paul feels, you know, felt a lot more Hollywood uh, stylized to cater more to, say, a Western fan base. Sales have increased, but the 
quality of the product has, in his opinion, definitely nosedived. And he was wondering what your thoughts are on this. Well, unfortunately, there is a process of making everything much more homogeneous. It's because our culture all over the world, because of our connection, because of our ability to communicate, we're losing our individuality with cultures. There will always be small aspects of, say, French cinema, which has its own style. There will be some small traditional Japanese cinema. But everyone seems to be going for the Hollywood style. So we we have Bollywood, which uses much the same sort of cinema style. Everyone is striving to achieve much the same sort of level and approach in entertainment. And everything else is going to become a niche approach to it. But by and large, we're going to be having a standard cinematic style, which is also being done in the games. And as I was watching, every time I'd come in for another session on Rev2, I would see a little bit more of the artwork for some of the scenes that I had already recorded. And watching it grow from the the first rough things to what, what looked like live-action film was astounding to me. And that is sort of the grail, I think, that everyone is moving toward. It's the loss of individuality, except for, let's say, you know, a small niche here and there. I really enjoyed the fact that with Revelations 2, it was a return to the survival horror. It was never going to be a a 100% fixed camera angle, third-person perspective, puzzle-based game. But compared to Resident Evil 4, 5 and 6, it was very much steeped in the survival horror focus and atmosphere. It had a fascinating narrative almost peculiar like many Japanese narratives have so I really enjoyed that and and the fact that it was a very much more survival horror based game. It was survival horror. It's one of my favorites of the series you know I love all the games but Revelations 2 was freaking awesome. I passed that game like close to 300 times already because I freaking loved it that much. And we love you for that. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I will say uh, that's that is an excellent answer. Not one I was expecting though because I thought it was more to do with sort of like how American video game companies in recent years have been doing far better than Japanese companies. And in order to try and cater to the American audience, the larger audience, I guess, Japanese developers are having to, sh- to change and shift the tone of their games to something that's more accessible. Mm-hmm. I never really considered the globalization angle because it, it does make a lot of sense when you think about it. For an example, closer to home, the announcing standard for BBC is different now than it was 20 years ago. Final thought on my own here before I move to the next question is, when you make everything all the same, you stifle creativity and Mm -hmm. you don't get that sense of individuality that makes things interesting and unique. I believe there should be diversity in games in that sense. Back to Crimson Elder, he asks... Video game voice actors such as yourself, Nolan North, Roger Craig Smith, Laura Bailey, who's done Warcraft work as well, I believe, Mm. and so forth, now become celebrities in their own right. Due to greater exposure, production values, uh, motion capture, advances in technology, 
and recording dialogue and motions for a video game have now become a serious acting career. It is an art and now a legitimate role for any actor to undertake. And he wants to know what your opinion is on that, what your thoughts are. It's quite right. There is so much more focus on acting performances now because they need to come up to the level of the technology because the the presentation visually is so cinematic that you can't any longer get by with, uh, you know, hauling a janitor in uh, to do a voice in a game because the players won't accept that level of performance anymore. It is a venue, a tremendous opportunity for acting in general. And it's perfectly fine, acceptable, and even to be desired now for celebrity actors to appear in video games, some with more success than others. There are some incredibly accomplished celebrity actors who who can do vocal performances. Others, not so much. But it is an aspect of performance opportunity, which wasn't there before. Roles for actors are limited. There's so much competition. Most of our colleagues are understanding of each other. We, as I said earlier, you know, we, we will replace each other. We will be replaced. We, we will go up for the same roles. Someone will get it. We can't all do it. But it is an extremely legitimate venue in which to do performances, to provide so many incredibly disparate and varied roles. You can be some clawed carapace creature on another planet. You can be a human being now. You can be a human being 10,000 years in the future. The possibilities are literally limitless, and the ability to be able to go into whatever that new universe is, which is only going to expand because this entertainment is only going to expand. And there will come a time when... Movies are going to be interactive, and we will no longer have lines between games and cinema. This is a question uh, which pertains to your own Revelations 2, and it's more like casting a more detailed eye over those working days on Rev 2. Alan Wenpai Mao? Yeah, we'll go with that. That's all right. From New Jersey. Fine New Jersey name, by the way, Alan. <laughs> and, uh, and he asks, what level of direction did you receive from the development team directly during recording sessions. I think we might have already covered that. We touched on it a bit, but from the development team directly, not at all. They were there, uh, generally five to six people for each session. Everything was filtered through the director, Chris, because if you have six people all throwing things at you at the same time, you will melt down. So everything goes through the director She takes the input, distills it down to the essence, gives you something, an approach, a way to go through it, what may need some emphasis, uh, an aspect of it which may not have occurred to you as the actor, a way of looking at it, uh, what might be motivating you, and most importantly, context. What is going on? What is around you? Who are you speaking to? Because there's no one else there for you to work with. There was a documentary for uh, Star Wars Episode Three, it was Ewan McGregor, and he was talking about how difficult it was to act and perform in front of a green screen because mm-hmm. 
in, he's meant to imagine what's going on in front of him. There's no droid general with lightsabers in front of him. It's just a green screen, and he has to imagine it. And I imagine that um, that it was quite difficult for you as well because you're not seeing what's going on with your character in terms of like what's going on in the game, and you're right. you having to sort of like imagine and picture things, visualize things. Before oh yeah, you. yeah. That's where we had to depend on the development team. I would say, okay, I need a little context. Why am I doing this? I'm not asking specifically for motivation, but what is going on around me? How far is the person I'm talking to? What is happening physically? When we're recording something like this, generally we just get the dialogue broken out line by line by line by line on a screen. And I must say to your credit, Michael, because it really comes across and you can hear it in your in the delivery, your performance, the fact that Unlike a lot of video games, with Revelations 2, a lot of your dialogue, not just being because it's a co-op format, but with not just your interactions with Natalia, your interactions with your daughter Mora, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of, it's a lot of emotional dialogue. So the fact that you're not interjecting, working off of another actress for Mora and for Natalia, really credit to you because, as I say, it's not just sort of bombastic explanations to combat that's going on around you. There's a lot of emotional dialogue. Mm-hmm. And those are the places specifically with the emotion where I needed a little guidance because I didn't have the relationships. I know my daughter's a foul mouth. Oh my word! You know. <laughs> yes, yeah, that was- that's what I liked. But that's what I liked about Moira's character. She was a foul mouth. that you say it? She told it how it is. Yeah, I don't know what did you what did you guys make of that? Yeah, Moira's potty mouth was quite extraordinary. People react to stressful situations in a different way. So I guess her way of dealing with the situation was by cussing all the time to make to take stress out of the situation and it made it funny. And Claire, of course, being Claire, but she's cool headed like Chris, I was like, oh whatever. I like the way they did that. So Moira does it by cursing and Claire, well she's got her her brother's genes, so she doesn't have to worry about cursing anytime. Because Claire didn't curse at all. The one I did it more was Moira, but I guess that's the way she deals with stressful situations. Then of course there's the aspect that Billy Connolly says in regard to himself, which is that well it's more punctuation. <laughs> <laughs> I wish to be talking about a great many things before the night is over. I take back what I said before about you playing a character in Dune. You should be Scotty, without question. <laughs> James Dewan in his older years, you nailed it. <laughs> Another question here from a Nemesis from Brazil. He asks, were there any challenges particular to Revelations 2 that were not relevant to your work with World of Warcraft? It is that the character of Barry was so restrained, so self-contained. That's not the usual thing I do. I'm known for being, uh, used the word bombastic earlier with DC Douglas. I tend to do larger-than-life characters. And again, I have to come back to the work that the director, Chris, did in pulling me back, grounding me when I would have done far too much. And that was very difficult. It's just not easy to not do what I'm accustomed to doing. It doesn't matter whether I'm capable of what I am doing. It's easier to do the other stuff. It was a good idea then that you didn't read up about Barry and know about his cheesy dialogue because (laughs) you would have had a whale of a time with that. I've got another question here. This is from Yoke from uh, North America. And he asks, how different is the role of Barry Burton to the other characters you normally voice? Now, I believe we just answered that question. I will say 
much more grounded and realistic than pretty much anything else I have done. There was one anime series some years ago uh, called uh, Gungrave, and the role I had in that was the character was named Big Daddy. He was basically a gangland boss, but he was an older man in love with a younger woman, and it was so very real and so very pulled back, restrained, so much that was not said and was not done. It's a challenge, a great challenge, and that's from the same realm where Barry yeah, yeah. is coming. Left to my own devices, I would have cheesed it up. I, I would have been too loud, and it wouldn't be the character that you're actually seeing on the screen. It's a tremendous melding of visions to bring a performance like this together. That comes across so clearly in your delivery. Good oh. Move on to the uh, next question here. It's again from uh, Alan Wenpai Mao. I've nailed that. <laughs> and uh, he asks, have you had a chance to watch or perhaps even play the final product, Revelations 2? And looking back, how would you critique your own work for Revelations 2? I don't look back. I don't watch my own work. There are actors who go back to their performances and endlessly chew it over and analyze every possible choice they could have made. It's too late. It's done. Whatever I think of it is meaningless. It's up to the people who are receiving the performance. And this is my approach through pretty much everything I do. I was there. I know what happened. I don't need to see it again. Let's say you look at your performance and you see something you don't like. You can't change it. You can't go into the studio and say, right, can we re-record this? The game's already out. You can't change anything if you don't like it. Right. And, and my job is not to please myself. Because if it had been, the performance would have been different and would, I think, have suffered as a result. My job is to satisfy the director and the development team with the end aim of satisfying the fans. And if all that came together in a way in which more fans than not are satisfied, then the, the performance is fine. I have no need to revisit it. And it might change whatever I do in the future, should I ever go back and do another one. So, no. Thank you very much. I've got one last question here before I leave you in the very capable hands of David. And this is from Bloody Eye. And he asks... What would you say makes your portrayal of Barry Burton in Revelations 2 different from past incarnations? Well, we, we've already touched on this, but specifically because I didn't know them. So I had nothing to try and model myself after, which I think is a plus. I joke about it, but I look at this performance really as a serious dramatic role. It was very damn serious. There was a whole lot. There's, there's an injection of humor now and then. But it is something which had to be taken seriously. It had to be grounded. It had to be real. Because otherwise, it would not have worked. So the entire acting approach for this role is different from any other game I worked on. And uh, I think perforce different from anything in this series that other actors have done because they weren't 
taken down the same performance road. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for answering uh, my section of questions. It's quite nerve-wracking to do, I must admit. It's like, I'm talking to Uther and he's answering my questions. Uh, so now I'm going to leave you in the hands of, uh, of Albert Wesker here. I think you did very well, John, that you did, you know, yeah, you did like, well. I was worried we might have to hold him back in asking you loads and loads of World of Warcraft questions, but he didn't. You are, all joking aside, you are, you're huge in, in, I know we're obviously we're a Resident Evil podcast, but I'm pleased that you got to talk about World of Warcraft because you're huge amongst that fan base as well. Well, I got something interesting to tell my guild tonight. Hey guys, I talked to Uther. <laughs> okay, so, uh... Now, uh, Albert Wesker, 187 here, is going to ask you some next set of questions. Before we go there, mm -hmm. John, I want you to know you've done exactly what you should have done. You accomplished the job. The mission is safe. But don't ever get in my way again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. I love the Frostmourne hungers as well. That was great. <laughs> I really do appreciate that. Like, part of me was almost tempted to be like, I wonder if you do that scene where Arthur purges Strathold, and it's like, you know, glad you could make it. Who's there? Oh, no. We're too late. These people have all been infected. They may look fine now, but it's just a matter of time before they turn into the undead. This entire city must be purged. What? How can you even consider that? There's got to be some other way. Damn it, Uther. As your future king, I order you to purge this city. You are not my king yet, boy. Nor would I obey that command even if you were. Then I must consider this an act of treason. Treason? Have you lost your mind, Arthas? Lord Uther, by my right of succession and the sovereignty of my crown, I hereby relieve you of your command and suspend your paladins from service. You've just crossed a terrible threshold, Arthas. That way lies madness. I wouldn't say it's madness, Michael. I mean, you know, <laughs> Frostmourne. I mean, Warcraft is our salvation. <laughs> uh, the last expansion, I think, uh, we've got the Lich King. Arthas is running around Ice Crown, sending people off to get rid of ghosts. Can you tell me what that's about? That's a rhetorical question. You can always hit me by email. <laughs> the spirit has been bothering me. Go, rid me of him. Why? You're the Lich King. <laughs> What's your deal, dude? He's a ghost. The scourge of the undead, and maybe there's just some that just, you know, slip through the net. I got your scourge right here. The time of the four horsemen has come, and you will bring about their return. Travel to the Scarlet Monastery and raise the High Inquisitor from her tomb inside the cathedral. There must be one among the four horsemen with the power to lead. Without a leader, there will be no unity among the four. Your fourth horseman lays before you, Death Lord. Command him to rise. Death is for the living. It has no power over the damned. Go now and do what must be done. 
David, I'm sorry. Don't worry about it. That's okay. I like hearing all this stuff. There's, I have no problem with that. I, I do not envy whoever is going to be editing this, but I am. You... And it's a, can I can I swear once? Go for it. No, no. I was asking Michael really. Not <laughs> Albert. Thanks, Albert. It's going to be an, an absolute fucking treat. Well, I'm really fucking offended too. <laughs> <laughs> David, you're up. All right, here we go. And again, like I said, Mr. McConaughey, it's it's an honor and a privilege to meet you, and uh, I'm looking forward to you answering these questions. Now, the first question comes from Bloody Eye, and he asks, what word first comes to mind when you think of the character Barry Burton? One word. Dyspeptic. Barry, I'm sure there are times his stomach hurts, but <laughs> people really piss him off. There is so much stupidity. People don't do what they should. If they just did what they should do, things would be a whole lot easier. Oh, that was wonderful. You could hear the great man just then. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, Barry Byrne has a lot of uh, anger towards situations, but him being him, mm -hmm. being the nice guy, he doesn't really get mad about it. He's like, oh, you know, if I get stressed out, I have this. So, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's got his beautiful and lovely magnum. If he gets stressed out, he can shoot a zombie's head or something. So he's got, he's got nothing to worry about. Yeah, he's the master of unlocking emotions now. So, right, moving <laughs> on. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Well, yeah, that answered my question really well. Thank you very much. Okay. Next question comes from Ray Redford from Malaysia. And she asks, do you think Barry has developed as a character since his portrayal in the first Resident Evil game? Oh, unquestionably. And uh, without having played the games myself to get the basis, just from what is what, what I've seen online, from what people talk about, the players who say what they, what they like about the character here, what they like about him there, what worked in this game, what didn't work so well in that one, and the things that they really, really like, uh, the things that really speak to them about the character – there is no doubt the character's been through some wild gyrations uh, as a result of game design, as a result of the production team guiding the performances, as a result of what the intention of each version of the game was. Uh, so that's going to have a huge impact on how, how the character is presented. And yeah, absolutely, of course. I agree with you there. Certainly not in terms of status. It wasn't a surprising choice because Barry is, you know, he's up there with all the other main protagonists. But it was quite a surprising choice just simply in terms of the series canon where Barry was his age, wondering how that would fit with a modern audience that Capcom are obviously always going to obsess over. It was a quite a brave decision anyway, going back to a more survival horror based atmosphere so throw into that mix the fact that also you've now got a returning protagonist in his senior years in, in terms of the series canon he's the same age as wesker right now Jeez, he's like 61 62 so he's the same age as wesker not everyone is 23 anymore <laughs> yeah i know i'm 27 <laughs> oh, <geez>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, exactly. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie to you when they first announced barry burton in revelations 2 it was unbelievable for me because I've always wanted to play as Barry. I never got the opportunity to play as Barry until Resident Evil 5 Gold Edition, but I, I have always wanted to play his story to see how it was. And portraying him in this video game was unbelievable. I was like, man, this was unbelievable. They actually allowed you to play as Barry. It was awesome, and it was an awesome experience for me. Cool. Oh, I wish I could become a voice actor, and I think I, I would like it, but it's a very hard entry to get into. 
DC Douglas touched upon this, that it's not as well paid as people might hope or think. Mm, that is quite true. Your passion for the love of being a voice actor is what actually makes a job worthwhile. You know, the thing about being a voice actor or an actor in general is you have to have a lot of passion. It may not pay as well, but you have that passion. It's a passion for you. And, you know, we're grateful that there aren't that many people who want to do it. Richard Waugh once said that if you can do something else, do something else, because getting into the industry is very, very difficult. People always contact those who are in the business and say, how can I get in there and be part of that wonderful thing? And I do my very best to discourage them. It's uh, it's so much more competitive now. It's so much more difficult because essentially anyone with a computer has a recording studio. For auditions, where it used to be for a commercial voiceover where you'd have an agency in town, they'd call a casting director and they'd listen to, you know, like 10 or 12 people. With the advent of the internet and technology, they will now get two, three hundred auditions. Everyone who can record something and finds out about an audition will submit. And the numbers are not with you. Joe White, who voiced Chris Redfield, yes, now a modeler for, for Disney, Michael, he made exactly the same point. That equipment is affordable now, so everybody can have it. This industry has been described as soul-sucking. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I would not disagree with that assessment. But it's like anything where the styles change. Styles change. Actors oh, come yes. into and go out of favor. And uh, with each new generation of producers and decision makers, the style of what is going to be acceptable changes. So we have uh, currently, uh, especially in the gaming industry, a much younger production viewpoint and uh, that perforce leads to a younger audience mm -hmm. because the the producers are now more in tune with the audience and it makes a, it makes a huge difference in the approach to things i say the styles change and the opportunities change but you know we knew the job was dangerous when we took it here's another question from ray redfield and it's a, another great question she asks there were a number of people suggesting the elimination of Barry Burden in upcoming Resident Evil games. Do you agree with that suggestion, or do you believe that he could be one of the important assets in developing the game's main storyline going forward? Do you think Barry has the ability to fulfill the role of a main protagonist? Eliminate Barry Burton. Eliminate yes. this godlike individual. <laughs> Just in terms of the feeling I got for his character, I think... Especially if you're going for an experience, which is not just to shoot them up in Splatterfest. If you're going for something where there is going to be character involvement, I think he could be an incredible asset to a story. Because I said earlier, you know, we're not all 23. There's always room for for a uh, a more balanced viewpoint. Uh, someone who's weathered a lot of change, someone who maybe may have a, a clearer vision of what is going on. I would not be at all, I mean, aside from the opportunity to perhaps work it as an idea for a character, I I think there's so much going on with him, especially in terms of what everyone says, however one feels about him. It would be very effective to have him leading essentially the charge through a game. Will that happen? I don't know. You know, like you specified earlier, the development team is always changing things. So who knows if they'll want to make Barry a main protagonist, you know? But I think it would be a really creative idea if they were to do something like that. I, I would agree. And I, I think he absolutely, the character absolutely uh, has the ability to be a main protagonist. 
What were you going to say, John? Oh, I wasn't saying no. anything. No, I, I think I was uh, Michael. But I'm flattered that you think that I sound like Michael McConaughey. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Spencer McConaughey. That's a great name for a detective. <laughs> Can I use that? You certainly may. Now, this next question for Ray Redfield, I like this question a lot. I like what it asks. And she asks, if you were Barry Burton and you had to choose one of the Resident Evil characters as your partner, who would you choose? Well, it is a great question. I'm not really equipped to answer it. But <laughs> I do have... A question in return. What kind of partner? <laughs> she's a very respectful lady from Malaysia, so I think she's talking about uh, a co-op partner. <laughs> Although she's also a romantic, isn't she? So I don't know. She's, yes, yeah. yes, yes, she is. Let me just say, I I would not think I, I would enjoy partnering up with anyone with tentacles. <laughs> so not Alex Wesker, then? There you go, Ray Redfield. And thank you for your lovely questions earlier. All right. This next question comes from Ellen One Pai Mao, and he asks, have you met any of the voice actors from the Resident Evil franchise? Oh, sure. Uh, the ones in L.A. It's actually a fairly small community, mm -hmm. uh, so we run into each other all the time. Uh, sometimes it's at conventions, so we, even though we're working here in town together, we don't actually see each other unless we're like, you know, Massachusetts or something like that. The voice acting community that does this sort of thing is fairly circumscribed. And so we run into each other. We don't hang out. I mean, we don't go to, uh, you know, karaoke bars or anything like that. Um, because you do not want to get a bunch of voice actors going. You do not. You do not. Uh, but we run into each other uh, mostly in a professional context at auditions or in, in sessions. It's like seeing someone in your family. We we are very much a family uh, in terms of the, the community. Imagine having like Albert Wesker's going to a bar, to a karaoke bar, and people don't like him. I'm going to kill you all. <laughs> Would that not be effective? Hmm? Very effective. <laughs> I'm sure there's something from your Uther dialogue that would work even better in clearing the bar. I just had this image in my head of you, Michael, just turning up with all these Warcraft actors and the guy who voiced Arthur's just turning good. Glad you could make it, Uther. <laughs> yeah, that was just awful. And then we yeah, sing a duet. A duet? <laughs> How could you even consider that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> the next question is from the Oracle Dragon, and she asks, do you attend games conventions? She's after your autograph. <laughs> <laughs> uh, gaming cons, per se, not so much. I, I, I've been to BlizzCon and a couple of others. But a lot of conventions, a lot of them are um, popular culture conventions, uh, which have anime and games and a lot of other things. Transformers cons. They must be so much fun. Oh, they are. They are. That's where the people with the gray whiskers come up and tell me what I meant to them <laughs> yeah. when they were kids. I've been very lucky with, uh, with some conventions, uh, some huge... Uh, Armageddon Expo in Australia was able to go down there and, uh, and in New Zealand, huge, huge popular culture cons. And they had everyone there from voice actors to major on camera actors. Yeah. Well, for, for Oracle Dragon, wherever you are, I would be happy to be at a convention there. Call someone, have them bring me in, and I will give you not one but two autographs. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, she's going to love to hear that. There you go, Oracle Dragon. You got yourself a, a deal now. All right, now going on to the next question. 
James Martin from Columbia, and it's an interesting question. He asks, if this is an area that can be discussed, why were the actors' identities for relations too shrouded in such secrecy? It's an area that can be danced around. Um, let's say there are very, very many reasons why an actor's identity is better not necessarily divulged. Um, there can be professional reasons, legal reasons, all sorts of other reasons. Many games are not done under union auspices. That's become a particular relevant factor, not just for Revelations 2, but for mm -hmm. Resident Evil games, certainly going back from Resident Evil 4, when you did start to get this consistent change with really only Alison Court, who voices Claire Redfield, being one of the only consistent actresses. Mm -hmm. Gaming companies in general. We have to sign non-disclosure agreements, as a matter of course, mostly before we're even allowed to audition. We cannot even read for a character without signing an NDA. Once we have signed an NDA and we do a game, we may come in and work on something and never be told the title. Yeah. The level of paranoia yeah. is incredible. And I mean literally incredible because I cannot believe the level of paranoic protectionism. When I was doing the DreamWorks things, traveling around for that, uh, it's not just games. It's entertainment in general. In emails back to the company about the project I was working on, in an email from me to DreamWorks, I had to use the code name for the film. <laughs> That's insane. James Bond level. Yes. <laughs> and yet, because they're so afraid that the actors are going to go out and blab everything for this incredibly secret project, when you can go to the website promoting <laughs> the project, and giving you a blow-by-blow -blow description of exactly where it is and what stage of production. Yeah. The next question comes from Morpheus Duval and the Oracle Dragon, and they ask, do you have any future plans that may involve working again with Capcom that you can talk about today? Actors never have future plans. <laughs> um, it's funny. Uh, we will occasionally have fans say, why don't you go ahead and, and do that project? I would love to do that project. One needs to be asked. In terms of, of a, a game scenario, actors are the last piece to be plugged in. We never are <laughs> consulted early on to any degree, whatever, because the, the game companies know what they're doing in terms of their character design. They know what the story's going to be. And when the time comes to add in a vocal performance, then they'll see who they want to bring in. But we have no input into the development process we have no uh, no one invites us they don't tell us what's going on they don't talk to us until they need us we don't have any information i i think as you've just proven you've got more information than i would have they treat us like mushrooms they keep us in the dark yes they do <laughs> cover us with that smelly stuff <laughs> and then they pick you when the time is right yes I'm going to go on to the next question from Yoki, and he asks, do you have anything coming up you want us to know about? Well, sure. Heck, there's always something going on. I am actually, in uh, in terms of directing, we're just wrapping up a, uh, a film called The Himalayas, where I'm, uh, I wrote the script and I'm directing the voice actors, replacing the original Korean soundtrack. It's a film that was 
the biggest grossing film in Korea in 2015. It even killed the Star Wars movie there in terms of box office. Oh, wow. So major, major film. And I, I got the opportunity to uh, do the English adaptation and direct it. And it's uh, it's going to be out on DVD, I think, August, something like that. But it is, uh, I, I'm very, very proud of that. I got some amazing actors working in that. And yeah. it's, uh, the performances are just incredible. Doing a lot of writing, um, anime series, uh, God Eater. I'm writing that, the uh, a series, Old Noah Zero. I'm writing that. Oh, and um, there's a, uh, a series on Netflix, Marseille. Starring uh, Gerard Depardieu, part of the uh, the the original production stuff that Netflix is doing all over the world. Netflix is going to eat the entertainment industry. <laughs> I think they will. Yeah, they will. I mean, Netflix is becoming very very popular right now. It's unbelievable. And um, for this series, uh, so far the first season, eight episodes. I'm revoicing Gerard Depardieu, and uh, he's a he's another fellow we can uh, describe as dyspeptic. Quite a character to have to redub. Certainly a challenge. It's, um, well, it's really satisfying. The challenge is, uh, of course, in terms of getting the script, and it always comes back to that, but it is, it's interesting. Uh, it, it's a, a, a political, not a thriller, but basically it's a soap opera, but very well done, set in Marseille. And it's, I get to be the voice. Of Gerard Depardieu, that man from Green Card. How cool is that? He's got a, <laughs> uh, he, he does a remarkable, remarkable performance. In it. Oh, yeah. No, he's a fast, fascinating actor. I'm also working on a, uh, a, a couple of uh, video games, which are being revoiced into English, too. So I'll be working with that with a whole lot of actors from the Texas anime scene and L.A. And that's going to be quite a monster recording. That'll be sometime in June. So. Got to keep moving forward. The shark must swim. <laughs> and just fingers crossed from us and, and the whole wider Resident Evil community that one day, and I know you're restricted in what you can say, that maybe one day we will be hearing from you and the wonderful portrayal of Barry Burton again. I would enjoy yeah. that to an amazing degree. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to go on to the last question. And it's from Yoki. And he asks, like the great man himself, are you a gun collector? I got a few. <laughs> that sounded so sinister. <laughs> I know. It's so different in the US as opposed to the UK. Things socially here are so different. And uh and the dangers to our populace from our freedoms is commensurately greater. So, uh I was uh, I was in the Marine Corps. Back in 19... And... <laughs> Simplified. <laughs> thank you. I, uh, and uh, from there, I, I got a very great respect for weapons. I, I feel that our Second Amendment is something to our Constitution, which says, the right to bear arms shall not be abridged, which some read as having a standing militia, others read as being able to personally arm yourself. I feel that is in our what is still essentially a frontier society is an extremely important aspect. Mm. And I think that it is uh, a good thing to be aware of the powers and the responsibility that go with having firearms. So, yes, I have some. 
I'm one of those rare Brits where I'd like to see the ban on handguns and firearms to be lifted over here. Guns used to be legal over here until like 1997, so fairly recent. And I'm of the belief that they, they should rescind that ban, but that's a whole different topic, I guess. We can get into what even your constabulary is, by and large, unarmed. Mm. What's fascinating, I've, I saw a documentary where they brought a load of cops over from Texas or Los Angeles, and they were showing them how things are done in England. And you could see the reactions of the American cops they were showing them this clip of a guy walking around drunk. He had a knife on him. He was waving it around. He was drunk and stumbling about. And he was surrounded by about seven or eight English police. And the American cops were just, their jaws were almost on the ground. They couldn't believe this guy hadn't already been shot. And they were going, look at them, look at them. Just take him down, take him down. You know, they could not comprehend that the police were trying their hardest to put this guy on the ground without shooting him because he didn't have a gun and he right. wasn't, you know, it wasn't posing any immediate threat. And they were just dumbfounded. The American cops just could not, they thought we were mad. You could see they just thought we were like on a different planet that we hadn't just shot this guy. The violent crime you have there compared to the per capita violent crime we have here. Mm. It's, uh, uh, I can make a case either way, but Unfortunately, as I said, with our freedoms, we we also have the freedom to be irresponsible, and too many of us are. Uh, that's all by way of saying that uh, living in L.A., we've had some social unrest uh, several times through the years, and I believe in a little bit of preparedness. Yes, I, I have water and supplies in case of an earthquake, because there will be an earthquake. Yes. And I am going to keep those supplies and that water i'm a gun fanatic too i'm a huge gun fanatic i love guns and that's why in college i studied criminal justice and i got all my degrees in criminal justice i'm just using my phd because i love law and i love weapons i should have done my homework because we've come right to the end of the interview and it was quite fitting that was the last question you know with barry burton being so steeped in gun history with his guns like iconic with the with the samurai edge and asking that question you know we purposely left that to the last one but I should have really asked early on. I didn't realize you were in the Marine Corps, Michael. That obviously must have been just a challenging and fascinating, interesting part of your life. But it was. I was one of the uh, the fortunate people to come out of Vietnam without being really seriously screwed up and with all of my pieces. And uh, we can't say that about many other people we knew and served with. The good fortune, I, one of the things I give thanks to to the great, overarching power of the universe thank you very much i'm very happy to be here how long were you in vietnam for not as long as i could have been it wasn't a full tour i got split off from there because there were too many of my military occupational specialty i was uh, essentially combat correspondent and i was in uh da nang with the uh, the first marine division there there were too many of us so then i got shuttled after a couple of months over to Okinawa, which by now, friends, is the Hawaii <laughs> vacation destination for all of Japan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> really bizarre. Funny how times uh, change, I guess. Do you find that a lot of that defines the sort of person you are now or still has an effect on things that maybe you might, you appreciate things more now? Without a question, without a question. It was a very interesting time because it was not a popular war, to say the least. I enlisted at a very young age, went in and did what 
what I thought I could. I would like to think that my service was of more use than not. It's something I'll never know. I do know that had I to do it all over again, I would. And I feel, oh, here, let's get on the political soapbox. Um, I feel that national service is an absolute necessity for every citizen. I would like everyone in the U.S. when they attain the age of majority to serve. It doesn't have to be military. But I think everyone should do some form of national service. Well, there's many in this country that feel that that's one of the things that's lacking and, and has contributed. The fact that national service, service stopped in the 60s in England. I don't know what John thinks. But many feel that's contributed to a lot of antisocial behavior, particularly amongst well, young youth. It's interesting because a lot of people were against a form of national service or conscription. Yet people, I think, have a lot of misunderstandings about it. They think, oh, they just wanted to go and fight in a war somewhere or fight that a war someone started. When you learn a lot of valuable life lessons and yeah, practical yeah. skills in the military. Absolutely. You would learn respect and discipline, travel the world, you get cultured, you'd learn life lessons, trade skills, all important stuff that people need in life. There are the intangibles and there are the absolute solid tangible things you get which as you said a skill work that you will have done on behalf of your country can translate directly into employability in a society where we are given all of these rights without having to earn them yeah i feel devalues them it's like here you get it you don't have to do anything for it here. All of this is yours. And this yeah. is how we get into a, a, a whole sense of entitlement and lack of respect and other things. And that is the sort of thing I think that Barry Burton would agree with. <laughs> well, what a great way to end it. Thank you so very, very much for joining with us. We'll be editing this into a podcast but i think it's only fair your fans know that you've been speaking to us now for well over two hours almost going into three hours you've been so very generous with your time so thoughtful and, and fascinating with your answers for me george trevor thank you so very very much not just the voice of barry burton but industry figurehead and friend now i hope to crimson head elder mr michael mcconaughey thank you so much you're so welcome I do apologize if my questions have been a bit too long-winded in that. For me as a Warcraft fan, it's just fanboying moment here, you know, where it's like, wow, I'm speaking to Uther the Lightbringer, this is the Lich King. And for me, that's where I get my buzz, my kicks from, is like talking to the Lich King himself. And absolute pleasure to, uh, to speak to uh, the man behind the voice. It's been a real pleasure. You're extremely welcome. If I weren't enjoying it myself, I wouldn't be here two and a half hours on. <laughs> and as for me, well, like I specified earlier, it was an honor and a privilege to meet you, Mr. McConaughey. And I want to thank you for taking your time. And it's also a great honor to talk to former Marines such as myself that serve this country. And I just want to thank you for taking the time. And, you know, it just feels like a dream. So just thank you for everything you've done and for taking time for us and everything. You are extremely welcome. And let me thank you for your service. And let me thank you as well. We should really let you go, Michael. Thank you so much. I'm going upstairs and kick one of my cats now. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this this has this has been a very, very great deal of fun. I really appreciate it. I've had such a, a fabulous time here. And I would like to say also thank you to 
everyone around the world who is so involved in this game. I've been made to feel so welcome, and it means so very, very much to me. I, uh, I am, I am extremely grateful that what started out as a job, just another job, has turned into something where I know that what I have done is really affecting so many people and hopefully in a way I, I feel is more positive than not but the fact that so many people are so interested in hearing whatever it is i have to monitor on about is uh, it, it's a gift and i deeply appreciate it oh, it's wonderful to hear thank you michael <sighs> natalia what are you Natalia? Now you can call me... Alex. No! Don't make me do it! Make you do what, fairy? and debate the premiere gameplay trailer for Resident Evil 7 at E3 2016. Recorded over two calls, first an instant take with George Trevor, Mr. Spencer, Crimson Elder and CC. And after a week of extensive gameplay research, the panel is then joined by Rombie and Jill Sandwich 988 for a more detailed analysis. Joining us for this Resident Evil 7 review, a retrospective look uh, over that demo, we've got Mr. Spencer. Hello there. I was paid to be on here. I don't want to be here, but they figured I'd be good for it, so here I am. Hello. (laughs) See, he's saying that, but I have to say, for someone who has been very justifiably uninspired with the series in recent years... Well, well, no, I mean, I I think, yes, I didn't like Ori 6. I thought it was a bit of a letdown. It was actually no, it's fucking dire. I'll be honest, but I like Tory Five. My issue isn't really with the games; it's more with the attitude that the community has. It's very self entitled and very, you know, it's like, oh, we want to have this, and we've got to be having it like this because I want it to be like the games that everyone liked in the past, but I never really played because I started when Tory Four came out. You know, those kind of cunts, as I call them. <laughs> you know, it's like a restaurant. And you get a homeless guy who comes in and says, oh, I want to have this on the menu, even though I don't fucking eat here. Come on. And all I've done is introduce you, and he's already... (laughs) (laughs) Because what I was going to say is I think that this this is all just guilt, because you've you've been running around, admit it, like a little excited Jilly Luminado since that... Where have you heard (laughs) this? 
you seem up for the series now. And I think in a way, there just seems to be a spring in your step. A lot of our sort of older, bitter old men that have been really embittered recently with the series, it was like little children on Christmas morning all day with us. It's been well, fantastic. To, to be fair, I play a lot. I'm a Blizzard fan and therefore I'm used to disappointment and uh, hype being built up and then being underwhelmed. So I'm used to disappointment and that's why I play Resident Evil. Okay, so that went on a little longer than I was expecting. Uh, thank you, Mr. Spencer. And now, uh, waiting patiently in the wings, we have uh, staff member Crimson Elder all the way from Wales. Well, it took long enough. Hello. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we also have joining us, sorry, it was a rather long intro with Mr. Spencer. Sorry to keep you waiting. CC, we have all the way from the Midwest of North America, Resident CC. Hey, CC, thanks for joining us. So, what did you think of the Resident Evil 7 demo? I had no clue what was going on. <laughs> I was just sitting here watching, and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I kind of had an inkling because I heard a rumor that it was going to appear in the VR. So as soon as we seen it was a VR game, and then I saw the word kitchen, that solidified it for me then because I remember the kitchen demo, um, which was in Japan last year. So as soon as I seen that, I kind of knew before I even seen the title that it was Resident Evil. But yeah, I still had the same like shock and all, and I was just like totally taken back. Oh, of course, because there was that kitchen spoiler. I know that was the main rumour that people were trying to put together was that kitchen VR and wondering if that was going to take the place of a Resident Evil reveal with that structure. This was the first time since I've been in love with the series that I've seen a Resident Evil reveal trailer for a new game that from the start until literally that logo came up, I wasn't expecting it to be Resident Evil. And when that came up at the end... Just this sort of joy and shock at the same time. And I was just, just a fantastic feeling. I will say, to be fair, when I saw it pop up and go Resident Evil 7, it wasn't like, oh, wow. It was more like, well, it's about fucking time. It's been, what, <laughs> four or five years since the last one? We've not heard a peep. So for what I saw, uh, you know, it looks good. However, I will say, I think we should exercise some uh, caution because if you were... Uh, Think back to, what was it, what would it be, 2003, when we first saw the Ori 4 stuff with the Hookman kind of oh, thing. Oh, yes, right? there's some elements and, of Hookman in this, yeah. yes. And everyone was like, you know, myself included, we're like, ooh, look at this, this is kind of cool. And then what we got was just awful. Mm. It was garbage. Uh, so the same could happen here. I don't know if the same could happen because we've got a specific release date, which is surprisingly early, of January the 23rd, 2017. I mean, I, I know that's coming up, but still, I think I'm, I'm issuing a call to reason here. I think yeah. we should just be a bit cautious, you know, and cautious optimism. And I will say as well is that I think I'm going to mirror what one of our podcasters said, Stars Tyrant. How the hell have they kept this under wraps for so long? Yeah. It's pretty impressive. They've basically already came out and said that the demo has absolutely nothing to do with the main game. So, A lot of this may be slightly redundant. And what John says about whether this is going to bear any resemblance to the realised product, we've already been given that rider, haven't we? We've already been forewarned that this is not a slice from the game. It's not the opening sequence. It's just a, a tonal theme. And with Hookman, I mean, that was a completely cancelled build. We know we're not going to get this, but hopefully... I mean, the things we are going to get that I'm really pleased that they mention, the key pillars of Resident Evil, the fear and horror, resource management, puzzle-solving, exploration of the environment, 
are all going to be in this, but they particularly wanted to focus on the horror and the exploration, which is fantastic. The only thing that's really guaranteed, though, is the fact that it's going to be VR, because everything else can change. Here's the thing, right, is that you said that what we saw in that demo and the whole trailer is not part of the main game. I believe it is, but not in the traditional sense. I think it's some kind of prologue that they'll release. Think of it like... Metal Gear Solid 5, Ground Zeroes. Ground Zeroes was like a little prologue that they released separately beforehand. They charged you $20 or £20, whatever, for the privilege of playing it, a glorified demo, but I think that's what they're going to do. They're going to release this little kitchen kind of thing as some kind of teaser, if you will, but I think it's part of a prologue yeah. that will take place some years mm-hmm. before the actual game is well it says on the japanese website it takes place after the events of resident evil 6 but how much of this will be realized in the real game and how you've described this flavor this suggestion kind of begs the question i think a lot of people are asking is it fair to say this is a poor man's pt i'm one of those people that never played pt so i watched it on youtube i was too scared to watch it on youtube it was fucking terrifying and I don't think I could see myself playing that. After seeing that PT thing, right, if it's past, like, 2 in the morning or something, and I want to go across the landing to take a piss in the bathroom, I have to wait till morning. I'm not going out there. It's terrified me. And that's a good thing. On Games Radar, if you look at their review of it, they're suggesting that it is very much that. It's, a, it's sort of a poor man's PT. If you're going to be walking around an environment at that slow pace, with the exploration of the environment brought back, which is a good thing. But if you're bringing that back and you're walking around at a slow pace, you better have something interesting to look at. And I think the two main comparisons is with PT, it's not just generic. You've got quite specific things relating to the backstory, interesting, very peculiar, eccentric items. Whereas from what I've seen, there isn't a lot to actually look at or interact with. The graphics for PT are better. I watch a lot of horror films. I don't tend to scare easy much anymore. But that game had me on edge. I haven't had that same skin-crawling kind of feeling. Um, I've had a few jump scares, and I've been like stopped for a moment and thought, oh, what was that? But no way in terms of uh, the tension I felt when I was playing PT. Jump scares need to be earned. These jump scares just sort of come out of the blue. They're not contextually linked. It's not as if something that's already in that room suddenly comes and surprises you. It's just something just suddenly appears. I will say, in regards to them appearing out of nowhere, it reminds me of the fucking monster closets in Doom 3. However, I'm glad that they are bringing about a return to the investigative element of Resident Evil. I always liked that about the first game, where you turn up, everything's gone to shit, and you have to figure out what's going on. You have to find out, you have to find clues, you've got to realise what's going on, read files, finding out. You investigate. And I love that. I love to have a game like that where... In the original game where it's best, where you turn up and it's like, okay, something's gone on here, there's been murders, there's a mansion, there's horrible shit going on. What are they? Who started this? I love the idea of mystery. Humans love a good mystery. Mystery is what keeps us hooked. It keeps us entertained because we want to know what it is. We want to find out. And that's what that's a big part, I feel, of what made the earlier games so special because you were finding out what was going on. In Resident Evil 4... You never really got that because it was like, oh, you're not going in to solve a mystery. You're just going to go rescue the president's daughter. That's it. It's like, oh, okay then. Yeah. I don't know if that was all to do with making the games more cinematic, but that's kind of like a movie script, isn't it? Just a bad B-movie movie script. Well, 
the investigation. The Oracle Dragon once called it a murder mystery with zombies. Yes, that. that is exactly what it is. And I think part of the problem is that the nature of the industry is changing in that we kind of see video games are trying to be more cinematic. They're trying to be more like movies. And movies themselves tend to be all about you know explosions going off every 30 seconds and therefore oh it's going to be high octane it's going to be yeah but but that gets so gratuitous and and so you know i I do like a good explosion i do like a good action movie but when you do it all the time and it happens all the time it loses its edge it loses its fun and therefore it becomes anti-fun yeah i think i think resident evil 6 suffers a lot from that it does. Well, Resident Evil 6 suffered from, what is it, too many, what's it saying, too many Chinese cooks spoil the broth? Yeah, that one. <laughs> oh, that's a few reference, right? Other things that I'm really heartened by that came out during that developer interview was that this is not a reboot, they're not throwing away the series canon, and uh, going very much back to what brought us all into the series, that horror, and then the exploration, and he he couldn't say the word exploration enough for me. He was very tight-lipped on the identities of the individuals in the game. I noticed that when asked. Gameplay very much wants to emphasise isolation and the fact that this can happen to any player. So I don't don't think they wanted to be drawn particularly or focused too heavily on, and that might be why they want to move away from past characters. This is something that can happen to you. They had an opportunity to do that in RE6 with Piers. Piers would have been a fantastic replacement for Chris. They should have killed off Chris in Ori 6 where he he gives his life for a cause he believes in. And I'll be happy with that. I'll have been happy with that because his death would have meant something. But no, we just had Piers just go and do his thing. And it's like, it was a meaningless death because it meant nothing. But we shouldn't really have people going, oh, it's going to be great. Ori's alive again. It's back how it was because you're setting yourself up a disappointment. Conversely, you can't have someone going, oh, this is shit. terrible. I want more like Ori 6 because that's the kind of shit that led us to bollocks like Ori 6 when you got people in Capcom that were trying to make the game cater to everyone at once. And you try and cater to everyone at once, you get to become a jack of all trades, master of none. I don't know why I'm calling for reason. It's not going to happen. All the comments, if you read all yeah, the comments... you say that, but all Facebook, of Facebook is exactly it, what you just said. Yeah, it's black or and white. Yeah, yeah. And I want the games to be better, yes, but I'm not hateful of them at all. I hate the fucking community and what it's degenerated into. And being proven right, just look at Facebook and you can see it for yourselves, the kind of absurdity of it all. We are so self-entitled and we want, I was like, oh, I want to have this in my game and I want to have this, but I want to have this. And, you know, it's like fucking politics or something, you know, there's so many different opinions. And you look at Capcom Unity Forum and GameFAQs yep. and Facebook and hearing you talk, it reminded me of the Trump-Sanders battle in America the Bernie Sanders supporters and the Trump supporters are like two sides of the same coin. They're both completely disillusioned and both have taken up completely staunch, it's you know, tunnel, yeah, tunnel-visioned extreme views. And that's just like the Resident Evil community in response to this it, demo. It, it really is. It's polarising. And there's no middle ground. It's like fucking Marmite or something. Before we get on to further spreads, take us through some of like your experiences playing the demo for the first time. What things stood out for you? I didn't get a lot of Resident Evil vibes, to be honest. I got more PT vibes. The graphics are not as good as PT, but it's kind of similar. Do you remember that Alison Road project? Yeah, I was thinking a lot of Alison Road in terms of Lilith, the female antagonist. 
yeah, I didn't really get any Resident Evil vibe in terms of like gameplay or style um, environments. Some of the environments were remake-esque. When you say it wasn't very Resident Evil-esque, do you mean more in terms of how Resident Evil has become since Resident Evil 4? Or would you say there there was any parallels with the earlier feel of Resident Evil? The closest parallels I could see would be remake. Nothing else comes near. And that's just in terms of environments, like the layout of the rooms and such, the mansion. But when you're talking about like the village in RE4 or Kajuju in RE5, it's none of that. (laughs) You don't get any... Kind of like you could pick this up and not know you were playing it. Like everybody's saying when they watched the trailer, they had no idea it was Resident Evil, and you get that same feel when you're playing it. That was a wonderful reveal right at the end. Biohazard's Batman did mention he noticed straight away, he thought straight away that it was Resident Evil when he saw the lamp in the corridor and thought, oh, that lamp's been used in Lost in Nightmares and Remake. Jesus Christ. My 15 year old son completely took the piss out of the nerd level of that observation and started just okay oh my name's batman and and that lamp was from lamps are us and, and just, that's just, a really good impression actually it just just wrecked us all the fact that when, we, did, you, when did batman join the call <laughs> i thought it was pretty clever putting together the fact about the the, the kitchen and the vr thing but jesus christ a lamp that's a whole new level like in terms of gameplay as well there's no comparisons to resident evil in environments, there's some similarities, but when it comes to gameplay, it's just completely different. It's basically one of those walk-in simulators. I was curious to know why CC could not make out any of it at all. Well, the only thing I saw that could look Resident Evil is that photograph of the helicopter with the umbrella logo on it. And, I mean, yeah, some of the environments, yeah, they're reminiscent of the Spencer Mansion, but that's about it. Don't forget that old man in the wheelchair. That was very... I, I, yeah, I that thought... was like a nod Spencer, to yeah. Mr. Spencer. Not you, but the actual Mr. Spencer. My initial theory was that, okay, is this some kind of prequel set in like the 80s or 60s where you're playing as George Trevor or something? I changed it around because apparently when I said it's after Ori 6, my theory now is this, right? So there's a line in it where it's like, uh, oh, welcome to the family. And I thought, the family, could that be the same family from Ori 6? Well, it's set in the deep south of America, it seems, on a plantation. Now, which character in Resident Evil had a very deep sort of southern kind of drawl? Derek Simmons, who is of the family. I'd question how much, if any, link with Resident Evil 6 do you not think they'd want to distance themselves from Resident Evil 6 as much as possible? Well, they want to make some kind of connection, and the family are still something that hasn't been cleared up. Like, they did away mm. with Triso. After OE5, Triso could have still gotten away with that by simply saying, oh, it was Acceler acting alone, and we were all cool with it. However, the family was something that never really got cleared up. They kind of did away with Triso, but the family is kind of still at large. Simmons was just, like, the leader but he got abandoned by them, and they said, right, you know, we're going to find a new leader. So the family's still at large. It's just that they cut ties with Simmons and said, right, fuck off, we don't need you anymore. See, I was wondering if the family reference was a reference to this family that are part, you know, part of the history, that are part of the history of this house that you're in. Well, there's that as well. It's like a cult of, like, hillbillies. Yeah. A bit too cliche, that, though, I think. It's a bit too of a trope, isn't it? The hillbillies, you know, or whatever. And, you know, I want to play Resident Evil. I don't want to play, you know, the hills have eyes. That was something that I caught right away because when you put in the videotape in the playable demo, it said the family. And I'm like, what the hell? Is that referencing 
Derek Simmons? Are these people, you know, like relatives of his or I don't know. And, you know, I completely forgot that Simmons had a southern accent. Oh, wait a minute. Hang on. Right. Andrew, right. You've played the demo, obviously, right? When you are playing it, is it like a film crew going in to investigate or something? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, you know how the Illuminati is sort of like, I think, in our world where it's like, you get people that have conspiracy theories and that sort of thing, and they go on investigations and go, oh, you think the Illuminati are involved, whatever. What if in the Aura universe, the family is seen by the general public and the average person and the average Joe as like this mythical thing, like the Illuminati, and that the people you play as are like amateur conspiracy theorists who go in to take on leads to find this mysterious family, go, oh, who's the family, whatever, and it builds up and builds up a past and tells you about what exactly the family are and that sort of thing and they're there because like there's sightings of ghosts which it says in the paper they're like a paranormal activity investigation team and they've come to this house because there's been sightings of ghosts it's kind of like re one where the dogs where they were like sighted as beasts it turned out to be dogs well this is the same thing but instead of instead of ghosts it's like hillbillies what's interesting about that is right away they set a different tone because with remake Rather than sightings of ghosts, you've got news reports about a murdered family. Some say they were eaten. The initial suggestion is that this is violence, this is a serial killer. And you straight away get the idea of monsters that leads nicely into zombies. Whereas with this, there's a very definite change of tact, isn't there? That this is psychological, this is ghosts. This isn't like a a report that there's been murders in this house or an abduction. Apparitions rather than beasts. That's... Definitely not the case, because in the dev diary, he said that people complaining that Resident Evil's gone paranormal, but he said that's definitely not the case. That was referenced specifically in the developer's Q&A. Yeah, well, he said that they've been getting a lot of negative fan feedback about the fact that Resident Evil's gone paranormal, and he said that's definitely not the case, so don't worry about that. It's not a reboot. It's going to remain the same as it is, so it's going to be like a virus or zombies or something. It's not going to be ghosts. Capcom state, we've not thrown away Resident Evil to tell a ghost story. It will make sense in the end. Right. Ah, oh, it's so intriguing. So fucking annoying. What do I do with this thing? <laughs> what, what, are you doing? <laughs> what are you stuck on at the moment? I'm just walking around the house trying to stick the finger in fucking wall sockets and shit. <laughs> but you've got that freedom. Because that's, that's the departure away from being able to do things like that with Remake, where you get these items, but you've got no idea where to put them. Whereas with Resident Evil 4, you find a key for the door that's right around the corner. Mm, that's uh, true, yeah. So I just love that idea that you're walking around like a complete idiot, just where to stick your <laughs> finger. Yeah. I've been doing it for the last fucking hour. Like, it's a finger. <laughs> like, Well, maybe if you put it on a particular mannequin, is that going to open up a trap box? Oh, man. That was the first thing I tried. Oh. I tried the mannequins. I tried sticking it on the dead rat in the fucking microwave. What? <laughs> I'm out of fucking options. I don't know what to do. Wow. What do I do? <laughs> when was the last time you had a puzzle on Resident Evil where you started to think, actually, this yeah, puzzle scratch is my fucking head. Yeah, so frustrating. Which is brilliant because, you know, that's what I was getting on Resident Evil 2, you know, back in the day. It's just great that you've hit that brick wall. It's making you think. But there's always yeah. that one thing that you haven't tried and you'll kick yourself when you find out, you know, that all you had to do was just put that mannequin finger, you know, up your ass or something. (laughs) 
actually, I watched a guy mess with that for like two hours. <laughs> I've been doing it the entire time. I'm just fucking, we've been talking, <laughs> just walking around trying to stick this finger in things. Just... Oh my god. I can see myself being engaged in that type wow. of gameplay for all the same reasons that I kept coming back and playing Remake after all these years. Yeah, the Remake fans are going to love it. The RE6 fans are going to fucking hate it. Yeah. What's going to be interesting is how that point, which I agree with, is going to be reflected in the sales figures. This demo is going to be an early reflection for Capcom because won't they get an idea in terms of how many demo downloads there are and the response to the demo might shape the finished product. Yeah, and that's a shame because on Facebook there's um, there's more people slagging it off than there are defending it, basically. It was someone like six. Someone had like 600 likes for a negative comment. Really? And for, yeah, and for a positive comment, you had about 300. So it's like more than half. You wonder how representative of the Resident Evil community and the sales figures at whole those lunatic fringe comments are. Yeah, and yeah. obviously they're appealing to the the Silent Hill crowd as well, and maybe that, that all that, that huge disappointment about PT, they're going to try to hijack that and jump on the back of that. And fair, yeah. fair play to them if it gets them more sales figures and, and drives the series in a more horror approach. That pisses me off, though. People can say that this stole from PT, which is basically Silent Hill, when Silent Hill stole from Resident Evil in the first place, and so many other games stole from Resident Evil. Yeah. That's a very good point. It's about fucking time they paid them back, so they, <laughs> they're entitled to it. None of these games would be here without Resident Evil. Yeah, so it's about time they fucking give back to the Godfather. Because this is the thing with a lot of the criticism, like at Games Radar, which just basically said it was a poor man's PT, and that there was very little to do and see. But I think there's probably a lot more that people aren't aware of, that a lot more that's unseen. I mean, even in the review... He had to edit his own review later on by saying that his criticism that it was one-paced and slow was unjustified because you can actually speed up the pace with the control stick. I just found something on the floor and I don't know what the fuck it is. It's like a big circle and it's like the floor's been cut. This is something. <laughs> like a pentagram or something. No, it's like a half circle. It's been cut into the floor. It looks like someone's had it with a chainsaw. I'm thinking maybe this key goes in there. I don't know. When... I first heard that you were part of this investigation team that are filming. It kind of just reminded me of the Sweet Home narrative, which starts with the investigation of, of this artist's frescoes that are in this mansion. There's a collection, there's like a little investigative team, and they've got a camera and they're filming the frescoes there. And it just kind of reminded me of that a bit. Oh, man, you're missing out so bad. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're lucky I'm even talking to you, Andrew, because what, you live, how how far away do you live from me? A hundred miles, if that? And what, um, some, some stupid I... excuse you've given about a pregnant wife or something, I don't know, and you can't... You can't my my girlfriend's there. eight months pregnant, she's yeah, so you due say. to pop next weekend, you want me to come down there? Just the selfishness is just breathtaking. <laughs> More of an environmental impact on the world than driving a Hummer to work every day. Having <laughs> a baby. It's true. <laughs> One thing that really intrigues me and I was just so excited to hear was the suggestion that there are these little, not just Easter eggs, but there are links with the series past. And it's very much for us as the gamer to kind of explore and find those connections and discover how much right. weight there is in them. Star's Tyrant said that that was Capcom's, that's what they wanted us to do. Yeah, Capcom is saying they want the mystery and speculation to drive the fans into discussing the connections. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. 
And that's what's so great. It's really got a lot of the community aside from the, you know, the extremes on either side. It's got a lot of the community excited again and, and enthused about the series. And I love the idea of audio files. Did Dead Space use audio files? Because it just really adds to the atmosphere when you're actually obviously hearing, not just reading. I mean, can you imagine yeah, if yeah, you yeah. had audio files for remake and you actually heard the researcher's will and the keeper's diary and heard the fear and the desperation in the voices of these people? I think it was the interview with the developer. Yeah. Cece, did they bring that up on that video in relation to an audio file that they found? And then they were, the chat was asking, oh, are there going to be more of these? Or I don't, I'm trying to work out, I'm trying to remember how audio files came up as a subject. I think it was just brought out by the developer. I don't know if someone asked them about it or, but I know that they said there would be no quick time in this game. Oh, thank God. Which is a departure from the normal. And it kind of feels like a reboot because they're going to use a powerless, ordinary person stuck in the situation. So it's not going to be a character we know or someone who has experience with this sort of thing. I think that adds to the tension, the fact that you can really put yourself in that position. It's not some sort of superhero, you know, Chris Redfield with steroid-induced forearms. Right, kind of like, you know, the early, the first game where, you know, they were pretty much naive going in. Yeah. My take on... The idea to go with first person, I hate first person games too. I I loathe them. (laughs) Um, But I think it was a way to immerse the player more. And I actually think it's a good idea. Yeah. Even though I hate it. Yeah, I think if it's realized smoothly and on these this generation consoles with sufficient frame rate, it should be fine. In the past, I've had issues with motion sickness, particularly from Resident Evil 5, which is infamous for it. I can't play it. For, I literally have to put it down after literally minutes. It makes me feel nauseous. And that, that's before the motion sickness. But I agree with you. Whilst initially I, I loathed it, it took me out of the game. I think I agree with you, CC. If done right, it can actually make the experience more immersive. Right. Yeah, I had a friend who played the demo earlier and she actually got motion sickness. She had to stop. And that was the thinking initially behind why Shinji Mikami wanted the first Resident Evil game to be a first-person experience. And the development started with it being a first-person perspective. Yeah, and didn't the rest of his team say no way? Yeah, it's in the, we've got the translated interview at Crimson Head Elder, the Shinji Mikami okay. interview that's in the true story behind Biohazard book, yeah. Right, I thought I read that, yeah. Normally, a first-person Resident Evil game, I'd be on the fucking floor, destroyed, that's it. I ain't playing no fucking more, Capcom, that (laughs) is it. But no, it just went over my head, it was of no consequence. I'm not a first-person kind of guy, but um, as long as we get horror, then we're getting the majority of what we asked for, I feel like. At the very least, we're getting horror again, so as long as we get a good story now, what the fuck does it matter if you see the, the back of a character or not? Done anything with that mannequin finger yet, Andrew, that you can talk about on air? <laughs> no, I'll put it back in the drawer. Fuck that. Me and a friend of mine, we were watching this thing that they were showing at Sony. It was some space thing, so we're going to have a gun, and he's in space, cracked some guy's helmet open in space, his face kind of blew out, it was awful, horrible looking. It was cool, though. And then there was, like, you know, people breaching into this place, and we were like, wow, this actually looks really cool. What is this sort of thing? And then at the end, it came up, Call of Duty, Infinite Warfare. <laughs> I feel like, oh, it was like that scene from, you know, the American version of The Office where Dwight gets that gaydar thing. 
and he touches his belt with it and it comes over his gear. He's like, oh no. You know, that was like the exact kind of reaction they had where it's like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like that. And that I felt awful, you know? We've all been digesting the demo and really playing through the gameplay extensively now. We're also now joined by long-term community members and contributors, Romby and Jill Sandwich988, who also runs a Resident Evil podcast. You can introduce that. What's that, Gordon? How long have you been doing that? Uh, I've been doing it for about three years now. I think I started January 2013, and it's called Let's Talk Resident Evil, simply put. I was a collector for a while, but then I was like, well, you know, let me start making Let's Plays. And then all of a sudden, like, one day me and my buddy Richard were just like, you want to just do, like, a Resident Evil podcast? Because, like, there wasn't any around on YouTube. I didn't see any. And we were just like, well, yeah, let's just do it. Like, we're not trying to really get any. We're just going to record and shoot the shit and see what happens. And we started doing it, and it became uh, pretty cool. I, I, I'm still surprised that I get people that listen to us just talk about stuff. It's really just overwhelming in a positive way like it's just like i'm very yeah. like humbled about it when i see like other people like you guys doing it and it's just it's really i love i love all of what you guys do i i checked out the website and i was like these guys are legit i signed up for the site and uh, it was just a great like community of people and uh you know that's what it's about it's really about the community you know what i mean like that's what is the big draw for me i love the community and that's why when i started doing the podcast it even opened up more of the community because it was open for discussion. It wasn't just like let's plays. It really yeah. uh, branched out. And also now joining us all the way from New Zealand, we have Romby, founding member of Resident Evil Fan and New Blood, just a year after the series started. So we're very much looking forward to the observations of somebody that's had the experience from Resident Evil 2 onwards, all the Resident Evil games breaking at the games conferences. And so, yes, very much looking forward to your observations on Resident Evil 7's premiere at E3 the other night. I um, accidentally slept through most of the Sony conference and woke up right at the end <laughs> of when it had just when it had just had literally just screened, and then I just kept watching the rest of the the E3 feed, yeah. and then I started seeing messages about what what had been on earlier, and I was like, oh, what? <laughs> I missed that. They released the trailer online is actually different than how it yeah. was displayed at the Sony conference where you get actually pictures and ideas of that there's more to this than the demo because the trailer essentially looks like bits of the, the playable mm. demo. And I think a lot of people have judged it mainly on that trailer that was released afterwards rather than what they couldn't see at the Sony yeah. conference. There are enemies, you can see outdoor areas, there's like a police officer, there's a whole bunch of like little shots of different things that obviously aren't in the demo. First thing that comes on is before Kitchen, and then you hear some guy in the audience go, I hated Kitchen! Yeah, you can, you can hear it. If you put it on YouTube, you can actually hear it. It's, it's almost it's almost like a prelude to some of these Facebook comments because I, the, the word kitchen hasn't even disappeared from the screen. And you can, this guy already manages to actually, he moans twice. You can hear him make two moans about it. Yeah. Last year at E3, Capcom brought along the uh, tech demo called Kitchen. There's a little bit on a Sony playthrough, but for the most part, no actual video footage came out. It all just came out as write-ups from people who tried it as a mm. test thing. But it all was relevant to what 7 is, to the point where the video scenes that you see at the start and the end of the demo directly come from Kitchen. They are parts of the VR demo itself. Okay. It's interesting to say that, the, oh, yeah, it's just, that was a tech demo. Obviously, it wasn't. It was development concepts that they've ended up using as part of this demo. 
and it's still used obviously in the demo itself but you constantly mm. see references to kitchen things take yep. place in the kitchen whether or not that continues to be relevant to the full game well they keep saying well it's not this is just a taster of the atmosphere mm. and so forth but i kind of feel that there's obviously some importance well actually on that subject of the the vr is anyone else here concerned a game driven by the technology so gameplay and the narrative may get lost behind in the fact that this is essentially just a vr mm. it kind of reminds me of like a movie when like they do 3d and they're so focused on the 3d that they forget that they have an actual movie on their hands that they have to make good i'm not too big on the vr i'm sure it's awesome uh it's just expensive I feel like they really just should focus like on I really hope it's not like, you know, they put a lot of focus into that to where they kind of lose track of, you know, their footing. They don't know, you know, some any kind of direction. But I feel like that would be foolish of them. I, I think they can't drop the ball here. I'd like to see them actually try the best they can as far as trying to balance it out with people who don't have VR because not everybody's going to jump the gun and get VR and spend. I don't even know how much well, it I is. You know, imagine by far the majority will be playing without VR, no? you got to consider as well that Xbox and PC are not going to have VR. Yeah, that's true. My concerns really is, like, the reports coming out about the VR. It's like so many people have said, I don't know if you guys have been following it, but there's so many comments and articles. I just think I saw another one just come up on Kotaku about <laughs> the VR making people oh. sick. Oh. <laughs> and there's something, <laughs> something inherently, like, not just VR in general, but there's something specific about Resident Evil 7's um, camera and movement alignment that really makes people nauseous people who normally are completely fine with every other vr game are like resident evil 7 made me sick like it's there's something that they haven't quite got right yet that's to do with you you can look and move with the stick at the same time which showing other games do that as well but there's something that's not quite lining up that they haven't obviously got on top of and it seems like they're trying to push this like really far for the VR. Like this is their first buy VR, play this game kind of thing. They're using this as it's like to kind of catapult it into the public, you know, as far as like, hey, look what this can do. So you can't give a bad impression with people getting sick. <laughs> so. They said originally they decided on the first person view before the VR, but whether or not you want to believe that is is up to you, mm. really. I can believe that they were going with first person before the VR because I mean they've always been toying with that you know we know Mikami's initial idea for the game was first person and I've been mm-hmm. surprised with the way the gameplay's developed more and more combat orientated uh, as someone who really d- doesn't particularly like first person I- I've been surprised that they didn't go with first person from Resident Evil 4 onwards if we go right into it and hit these cliched criticisms head on is it a poor man's pt my initial reaction was very positive in the sense that basically this is not the same old route we were going down very tired with resident evil 6 it was a complete change up pinpointing that newspaper headline that references ghosts rather than beasts or monsters that kind of sets the tone i love all that but then taking a more considered look and looking at kind of what's out there particularly looking at pt and allison road to me i think that it is a fair criticism that it does come across as a poor man's pt but without just making that generalisation, specifically a poor man's PT in terms of the graphics not being up to that sharpness, in terms of the mm. the length of the demo, the the way that you're immersed into it, and also the thing that Alison Road and PT do, the tension slowly builds. I got the impression with this thing, it doesn't build. The tension's there, whatever level of tension's there from the start, and it doesn't build. The tension with this one, as far as like comparing it to PT, like playing it, the teaser, as far as it being like scary, scary, 
it didn't really do too much for me. But I did kind of like the whole uh, kind of they started putting that, you know, psychological aspect in there with like things slowly changing on you. I did like that. I thought it worked. Now, could we have a whole game of that demo? I don't know. I, and that's why I think I, I can't wait to just see the final product because then by, by at that point I can see, well, can they make this work? Can they make this scary for however long, an eight-hour game or a 10-hour game, however long it is? And, and I think it's very interesting. I feel like the teaser alone showed like what it could do as far as it being scary. It didn't really do too much for me, but I think that they have the right direction yeah. as far as, okay, we can make it, make it our own and, and not like uh, anything else. If this came before PET, then would that make a difference? Yeah, exactly. People were linking me to interviews with them at E3, them saying that it's been in development for a longer time. I don't know if they were talking about PT specifically, but people were like defending that whole argument. It's a poor defense because inherently that's trying to say that this game existed within a bubble. Yeah, you exactly. Know, just because yeah. they started it first doesn't mean that they can't be influenced by other things that happened exactly. in the development time. And clearly PT was a big success and they were, yeah. even if they had decided on a first person, they would have played it themselves and said, hey, this is on the same length as we were going towards and they've really nailed it. Is there anything we can learn from this? Like, it's yeah. pretty obvious that would happen anyway. Yeah. And as long as it's not a blatant ripoff, like they're not just literally copying it, what was wrong with PT? Like, if they have influence from it, you know, as long as they make it their own. My concern was that it didn't feel that it had the depth. Maybe PT was always going to be, to have more depth because it was longer. You know, maybe this was always going to be quite a short demo mm -hmm. anyway. And maybe what we get in a second phase might have that depth. It's about purpose. I mean, PT had a bunch of secrets that were unexplained, intentionally put in to try and lengthen its it's intent, like the whole idea was to have the community talk. Yeah. This demo doesn't need that so much. Unless this key finger <laughs> thing the and finger the axe dummy finger. <laughs> become, become an actual thing at this stage, that's about all you've really got. You've only got a couple of things that really need to be explained. The finger hasn't been explained. The axe hasn't really been explained. I kept like reading the, the, the chat, like it was going so fast. People were like, oh, try this, try that. And I was like, guys, I've tried so many things. I'm giving up. I, I don't know what I can do with this finger anymore. And then there's people like, well, if you check it, like underneath the blue wire in the kitchen, it moves. But then people were saying that there's a bug where all the items move if you examine them or it, that's just intentional or not. And they're like, well, maybe if you check the finger by all the ghost hotspots, like from the VHS tape, it will move. And like it did move when I examined it. I saw a video today of some poor guy who spent almost 20 minutes kicking the doll of the baby that falls to the floor all the way into another room, only for a bug to develop where it just then disappears once you kick it into this room. Yeah, I, I tried that. <laughs> I tried that with the mannequins, too. I just did it for fun. I knew it was going to disappear. And I tried to kick. The, they were like, maybe you can, like, throw the baby down, like, where Andre was. And I was like, all right. And I start kicking, the like, the baby. Then I kick the mannequin. And then, like, it just disappears. I'm like, well, it's just a mess of ideas, you know? It's crazy. I think there's a few things in there to throw you off as well, because upstairs in the phone room, there's like a circle thing if you look at it at an angle. Yeah, the shadow. So everybody, yeah, so everybody's like, oh, it looks like a map. But then on the wall opposite to the end, there's exactly the same thing on exactly the same wall. It's just kind of like a texture glitch. I tried that on stream like for the first time, and like somebody like said that. They're like, yeah, you could try this, but it's probably a texture glitch. And I'm just like, I don't know what to believe anymore. And I think the mystery of that kind of keeps you on edge of just like, wow, like there's a lot of things that are probably going to be 
unraveled like as we go throughout the and with the whole picture and everything and the phone call it's just like different endings and all that there's a nice little bag of uh, goodies in the demo i like it and as i played it over and over again got the endings and stuff like that and just got got to see stuff i'm i'm excited for it you know i i think that this was a, de- a decent uh taste of what to expect if they want to get everybody on board they should release this demo everywhere eventually like i know it's probably a deal with sony i'm sure to like exclusively make for playstation but i hope that everybody gets a chance to play so they can form their own opinions of what to look forward to it looks like it's going for a darker gritty setting from what i've seen and i'm interested in seeing new characters and they said you know there's going to be cameos of older characters which you know I really want to see how they're going to bring the script and the writing. I try to pay attention to those key elements as far as like, you know, put graphics aside, put the first person aside. At the end of the day, when I get the final product, if the demo is a is a taste of what that's going to be, then I'm all in. I just want them to make that whole concept of a new character's first person, make that stretch out to a whole game and not letting it get stale or just poor jump scares. And then like all the stuff kind of falls flat. I hope that's not the case. If it's like every three numbered titles, they're going to switch things up. So one through three, yeah. four to six, and then mm-hmm. now seven to nine. One through three was about Umbrella and Raccoon City. Uh, three to six was um, Wesker and uh, bioterrorism. So now they need to yeah. get something to carry them into the future. You see a photograph from the wall of Mr. and Mrs. Baker, and Mr. Baker clearly resembles the guy who punches you at the end and welcomes you to the family. Welcome yeah. to the family. Um, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, in that picture, he's missing a finger. Check that out oh, next time. Oh, I did not notice oh, that. <laughs> My only thoughts are it's either it's going to be the, the specific demo content is going to be relevant to, to actually, you know, they're saying it's not going to be, but they're actually lying, and it is the sort of going, the person we play as in the demo is going to be the person we play as. Or it's going to be like, as far as I'm concerned, maybe the setup is that uh, it's very much akin to the first game in that the, mm. the the people that were brought in was a special forces team because there were hikers missing in the forest. So maybe it's some sort of detective or you know, person who's not, skilled like a private investigator or something who's brought in because of missing people in this area in the south like it it may just literally be what we're seeing in the demo is the catalyst for events that it's like an follow. introduction pretty much for yeah. the game yeah yeah that that's yeah. that's what i thought yeah. and one thing i'm having slight difficulty with in terms of knowing where to place it and then how much i'm going to connect with the game is that it's some of the scares and the environment is is a bit tropey and so with that you kind of lurch from one particular film to another so some of the time it's like i'm watching the ring and then when you see those the hanging dolls it looked very much to me like mm. the kind of the, the witch creations in, in the witch. witch project oh i thought yeah. the same thing and with the, yeah. and with oh, the VHS tape as well and you're like following in the footsteps of which is actually one of the things i loved about the george trevor diaries in 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 remake the way that story was told you're you're following in the same footsteps as this chap that had done it in the 60s yeah oh my god um, that was great and yeah. so that's what i like about the vhs tape but i think because it's quite generic these sort of themes it's lurching from one thing to another that's probably one of the biggest criticisms that I think perhaps is the most valid that, that I've seen from a lot of people is that outside of the demo, if, the, if this is a really representative of, of the basic gameplay and the basic concepts, because that's what they're saying it is, mm-hmm. then there is a concern that everything it does as a demo doesn't show this game as a, an a, mm-hmm. kind of an original thing. And to say that is kind of 
weird because I know the franchise itself is built on tropes and, and previous concepts, but it's the way those were always previously presented where you took maybe a couple of other ideas that people had done, but then when they were put together with everything else, they became a new yeah. whole that was interesting and unique of its own. Whereas this demo doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like PT. It feels like amnesia. Um, the tropes come from movies yeah. and right down to direct references and the first person moving or it's just first person. Like there's nothing unique so far in the demo that really makes it stand out as a original idea. And I think that yeah, that's, that is true. And hopefully will be fixed by the final release, but who mm-hmm. knows? I think that will so. be because I think that's more about the presentation. Cause Romba, you were saying about the footage that was shown directly when, when RE7 broke at E3 being different to actually the gameplay trailer. And I remember when I initially watching that before I even realized it was a Resident Evil 7 game, the film footage and the way it's cut together, it was so tropey to me. It reminded me immediately of the, pitch reel for the television drama that never developed Arclay when the guy that was putting together the idea, he just took cuts from other films, uh, films that were already released just to give an idea of what the, you know, the theme was going to be and the concepts were going to be. And it just, it kind of reminded me of that. Mm. I definitely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Comparing Capcom and their size and their financial clout to a Kickstarter and the guys behind Allison Road, and that just seemed to get a lot more right and a lot more original and unique. Uh, what Just one example for me was in Allison Road, the tension builds. So, for example, the lights are, the lights are on at the start, and then I think halfway through the gameplay, suddenly they, they turn off. So, you know, there's that, suddenly that change. It just didn't feel to me like it really built in that sense, the tension. Because all the tricks are kind of on the table at that stage, and it really does feel like it's like... The first time you walk around, you're kind of a little uneasy, but it probably stays pretty consistent. You're, you're searching and you're looking at each new room. You don't know what you're going to find. Um, but by the second time around, you know you've pretty much seen everything, unless unless they make a re you know replay mode which changes everything up and adds things in and takes things away. The one thing that actually was like for me was a jump scare that actually kind of worked was the mannequin behind the door frame. When, when you're going to go out the, the door and I was like, oh, wow, yeah, because I wasn't actually experienced. But once you've done it once, like the next time you're going towards yeah, that door, like, yeah. again, you're like, here comes the yeah, mannequin. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. coming. Yeah, that got me too. <laughs> the thing about this is, well, this is, it's like a walking simulator game and those are great and they're popular right mm-hmm. now. And I really enjoy them. Like yeah. I played uh, Firewatch and all these games. But once you play them once, I don't find myself... Yeah, well, that's that's what we're just talking about. It's like the walking sim thing is that once you've had it once, it doesn't work again, and you and and the force of replaying it is just it, it it loses the point. And if that's what the game ends up being, then it'll be you know you play it through once, and the only other reason you're going to play it is if you just feel like picking it up, or you've got a you know some reason, or you want to get all the achievements or trophies. Come clean. Yeah. How many of you guys put all your settings to seven to see if that'd do anything? I did it. <laughs> Live, I did it. I there, there's just me looking like an like like a tool, just like oh, let me change it to seven. Uh, see if see if this works. But you know what was weird is apparently, and I and I went back and listened to it, and it didn't have anything to do with the volume. But apparently, when the one time I went through the VHS tape, somebody heard the phone ring out on the porch before they opened the door. You can hear like a phone ringing in the distance. But then it was gone. Like, it did it once, and that was it. And I was just like, that's really kind of strange. Like, there's just – and that's when I was just like, there's a whole thing of stuff I don't even know. 
because we are enthused by this general shake-up and return to that survival horror atmosphere, are we all looking for too much in this? Groundswell of all these these streams of people desperately trying to find you know clues and what to do with, with with mannequin fingers and things and this massive you know really seems like a far more positive interaction from the community than four or five or six that I can recall. And um, so, do you think Capcom are going to take heart from this? And so, what we're going to get in the main game, which I think, am I right, is 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 actually they've already stated is going to be in it set in a mansion, a one location mansion setting. It's just going to be a more and more in-depth version of of, of this game. What we've got, uh, I.e., I, a murder mystery, which is the, the, which is what I loved about the, the the remake setup. With like a lot of survival horror games now, it's like very hard to get something that, like original. I really enjoyed like Evil Within a lot. I really enjoyed Alien Isolation a lot. There's something about these like first-person kind of survival horror games where they make you kind of defend, like you can't defend against yourself. And I know that they said there is combat because I was afraid. I was like, if I'm just running away and hiding throughout like the whole game, I will not be for that. Having something where it's like in one setting and it's something, it's stripping it back a bit. You're not in China. You're not in the U.S. You're scaling it back, and they're trying to take a back seat and be like, all right, what can we do to make it more simplified? Because sometimes the more simpler things are the scary things, the stuff that you know isn't overboard. I thought back to Alien Isolation, and I actually think that's one of the things that limits the playability, the replayability of that game, is the fact that you're spending a lot of the time hiding and not fighting back, and I actually think that limits the replayability. I played Amnesia, I played Outlast, I played them, and they're solid games, but I feel like for a Resident Evil game... I just feel like that's just kind of out there, you know. I, like it can work alone as a, like a new IP. Like if somebody's like, "Hey, we're gonna do this or that," that's fine. But I feel like with Resident Evil, it would just be a little too big of a jump, if that's fair to say. Like I feel like that would just mm. be something a little bit too out there. I don't know what you guys think about that. I don't think they're gonna be doing that. They confirmed combat. I'm pretty sure. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. You see something happening during that video wall stuff I was talking about. There's yeah. There's definitely yeah. an enemy and there's a weapon and and we don't see how it quite works. The shots are very short, but there's definitely something there. As far as the developers are concerned, I think the 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 reason why I really think that the the setup of this demo lies with the story being a kind of a, someone from the outside investigating something and being unskilled and combat and all this sort of stuff is all going to come from the fact that they've, they've made so much reference. We, we want to bring it back to the roots of the of how the yeah. original was. So I see all these parallels, and I really do think that that's one of the most important ones, that, that the location oh, is yeah. one location. Yeah, I want my mansions yeah. and my underground laboratories, goddammit. Come on. <laughs> that's a yes. point actually that's come up quite a few times when we've interviewed the voice actors, particularly I know Joe White mentioned this, and Michael Mahoney on this podcast mentions the fact that what, adds to the tension is the protagonist not being Chris Redfield with supersized forearms in Resident Evil 5. The boulder yeah, punching exactly. in, in 5 when exactly. he punches the... Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're not superheroes, <laughs> and I, I really like that, that, that point that Ron behind is you know, unskilled oh, yeah. to be in that situation they're investigating. It reminds me of Sweet Home, the setup for that. Documentary makers investigating this long dead artist and, and investigating these, these frescoes on, on the walls. Completely unskilled mm-hmm. to deal with that situation. And that and, and you as the player, you're, you're, you're put in their shoes. It's, I think it's hard for me to connect with Chris Redfield. But yeah, but, but these guys <laughs> lost in the woods, lost in this cabin. I think that's definitely a move in the right direction. Yeah, it's refreshing. It really is. I think they even quoted in an interview, they're like, they're not going to be boulder-punching heroes. I think that was actually quoted with a new, refreshing look at everything. 
you can really start to come up with more ideas because you're not trying to oversaturate it with we got to appeal to this. We have to appeal to Call of Duty or put a lousy cover system in the game. You know, it was just god awful. It's just like I feel like with new characters, like some people might be like, yeah, like I kind of miss it. And I do. I, I really I do miss the characters, of course. You know what? This would actually give them a lot more to do with the game and the story. You know, well, the characters can't save a poor story. They didn't save that iconic image of Leon and Chris pointing guns at each other. But at the end of the day, does doesn't save mm. Resident Evil Six at all. Exactly. Considering it was the first thing they came up with for that story as well, was was that yeah, idea yeah. of having those two facing oh. off and how do we get them there? the loudest and I think one of the most nonsensical criticisms that, oh, where it's, oh, it's not yeah. Resident Evil, there's no Leon. Two of the things I loved was the fact that at the end of that demo, my mouth was on the floor. My initial main reaction, without thinking it all through too harshly and comparing it to other games, was I was very positive. I didn't even notice that it was first person in the sense that that just went over my, well, went mm, over my head yeah. because it was just, I was locked in, in, in the gameplay and the imagery which, which I was really connecting with and I didn't even think to myself oh, no Leon, no Chris The thing that bugs me the most people have just been way too premature I mean, we've got Remake 2 we've got Resident Evil Vendetta both yeah. of those star Leon and, and Chris is in Vendetta and we're probably going to get a Revelation 3 which would be maybe Jill it's not like we're going to see you know, we're yeah. never going to see these characters yeah. again just that, calm that down that is true <laughs> People forget about, like, the animated movies always link to the game. So, like, Vendetta, even though it's far off, what if all of a sudden, like, Leon hears a report of killings that's happened? Like, he just hears about it or something. Or, like, one of the characters hears it, even though they don't investigate it, but they just hear about it. They look it up on, on their, like, phone or online or something, and they hear about these, like, reports of people going missing. He has nothing to do with the game, but it's just – it's showing you, like, hey – this is still the same universe. We're just doing something different. Uh, and yeah, but you're right. People just are kind of too quick to jump, you know, to jump, jump into to conclusions. conclusions you know? yeah. I don't like the idea that people jump to conclusions and make a definite conclusion about things beforehand. But, it, but some yes. pe pessimistic feeling is not the worst thing in the world and being cautious. That um, is true. It's not even a demo. It's a teaser. And this, you know, they said it's not part of the game. Let's just wait and see what happens. <laughs> Resident Evil 6 left a bad taste in people's mouths, and I completely mm. understand. Resident Evil 6, like, really pissed off a lot of people, and they just don't want them to drop the ball. That's why I understand both sides of people being very cautious. I completely understand. You don't want to give Capcom your money if they're going to screw you over again, you know? Mm. You don't want to do that. It's definitely a unique reveal. It's probably the most diverse I think I've seen since, I want to say, Resident Evil 5 because 6 mm. kind of had this just one single momentum wave where everyone was either excited yeah. or not excited, and everyone was mostly disappointed. <laughs> but 5 really really had this kind of split yeah. for a while. People also need to calm down and wait and just see what the final product is, because it's probably going to be quite different. Yeah, It's representative of a, of a mood and not so much, and, and the first-person perspective, but other than that, not really the gameplay that the final product's probably going do, to do be. Do you think, realistically, that final product could be set in just one location, one mansion location. Does that almost go back to the same reason why they won't go back to, you know, fixed camera angles, that it's just almost old-fashioned gameplay? No, not at all. Most of the uh, existing walking sims, especially horror-based ones, are mostly locations set to one or one expansive location. The games that we've all talked about previously earlier on are all largely set to one 
one-ish location they're not mm-hmm. and even if the locations are two different locations they they don't feel dis- dissimilar so um i think it's a trend and i don't think they've got any reason to and i think it justifies the idea of what the original game was to them that it was one mansion and and labs so um and you were trapped and that part of being trapped adds more potential yeah. fear to the circumstances if you have a look online for the uh, information about the kitchen demo, it'll explain more about that scene that's at the end of the game about how it was in VR, um, because it's, it goes it goes on to more detail about the woman that attacks you in the in the final frames of the VHS. I'm gonna have to look at that. Wow, that's that's really that's really cool, and it's also an interesting thought because I thought was thinking the same thing. I was like, where and when does this fall in between what we're looking? Because you know, when it starts up, you see him like in the chair and stuff. I like it, though, because it does kind of make you a little confused. You're just like, mm, I kind of want to find out more. It kind of keeps you on edge. I'm interested yeah. to know if the character we play in the, the now real de- time of the demo is the main mm. character that we are going to play in the game or not, and the Welcome to the Family Son is actually setting up how the game is actually going to start. Like, that you're gonna, we're going to see yeah. that still happen somehow. I, I don't know. Like It may not mean anything whatsoever, but... It may not. We don't know, yeah. Is it just confusing, or are we actually missing something? Well, I've seen someone suggest that the character that you're going to play is something to do with this missing son of the Bakers, because initially you're told of of the Bakers and this this troublesome son, so there's three of them. I don't know if if you can read too directly into this, but if you look at the tables, there's only two plates set at both the tables in the house. So the suggestion that getting punched and welcome to the family son maybe you might be playing as that wayward boy that the, the the guy talks about in the video wow i didn't notice that that's there's a lot of theories um but the, there definitely is but then again that goes to whether we're th- that's th- that's one theory to you know if, if we're just theorizing too much yeah and, exactly. and this is generally just like a prequel I feel like they're they're really doing a good job of keeping people on the on the edge of like you know what to find out and just like what what you know what are we doing here what is this what is this location like what is making this thing like haunted like what why is there ghosts like now you know like I want to know all these explanations so many questions so many things the family is the family the family or is it just the family like people the family, were like yeah. debating whether or not it's related oh. to the family I mean, you know in the franchise and whether or not it's just every you know colloquial welcome to the family because he's mm-hmm. going to be trapped with I the th- family like uh, no i think what one thing that i'm sure they are getting right capcom is that they want to run as far away from resident evil 6 as possible and i think a lot of that goes yes. in this type of gameplay so i'd be amazed if they would throw not go left field but you know go completely in a different direction with the gameplay feel uh, and, and a whole look of the game um, but then suddenly we say this but then we still have to tie the fact that it exists within the canon so even if it's something from a game that people didn't really like it's still a dangling plot through that could be a launching space for something a lot better like there's nothing saying they couldn't but you know it could mean absolutely nothing it may not be related at all but I mean, people have made the point that simmons's uh, voice comes <laughs> from south, south yeah. you know yeah it's a good point, but I just, mm-hmm. I just, I don't know if they would have a link at least with Resident Evil Six. I hope it's more than just a little Easter egg that you know you you get that photograph of an umbrella logo on the helicopter, but specifically the text. You know, are they watching us? So I, I wonder whether the people that wrote that on the photograph were the Baker family before that. You know, they were turned into whatever mm. made that guy punch you and welcome you to the family. That made me really happy to see an umbrella logo. I was like, yes. <laughs> I was just really happy to see something from the universe. Like, I was like, all right, cool. It's still 
it's still here. Well, There's still something. It's not here, a Resident you know? Evil game without an umbrella helicopter, is it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's just it's it kind of brought back little memories. I was like, man, this reminds me of like old school Resident Evil. Like just kind of seeing that picture, it just looked very old. Like Raccoon City one. Like. Raccoon City. Yeah, yeah. So I, that's why I kind of made me a little little warm with nostalgia. I was like, wow, this is this is nice. I like this. Even though they're bad, they're badass. You know, they're they're up to no good, but I still love yeah. them. <laughs> Do you think there's any reason why the ghost only shows up? on the, the videotape version and not when you're not actually holding a camera. She's either gone or you're only seeing the ghost because of the fact that you're using the camera. Maybe she's still there when you're not is using it, the camera. Yeah. Is it made clear? I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to see how they resolve this. Like, because I keep saying it's going, it's, there's an explanation that's rooted in the real world of the game series. We're not trying to do the supernatural thing heavily. So there's, there's got to be some sort of explanation that's much more straightforward. They've taken into account feedback from the fans. There's no QTEs. Um, we mentioned a few a few things here tonight, which the fans have been harping for for a long time. I think that's yeah, one of the I, biggest positives so. for me. I think one of the smartest things I've seen, I think it was, I can't know if it was the IGN 13 things thing or one of them, but it was yeah. one of them. There's a quote saying, we know we can't please... <laughs> everyone all the time like yeah. they can't make it, it which is sensible yeah. like this is the this is the other problem with the franchise and i've said this time and time time again you kind of feel like they don't know what to do with the franchise and so this idea of splitting action off into one horror into another at least is an attempt to try and resolve that perhaps not the perfect answer but it's mm. at least an attempt yeah and, and and again that gives me a little bit of optimist optimistic you gotta try yeah at least they're trying well, that was the problem with resident evil 6 wasn't it that they just try to throw mm. everything in it at once and at the end of the day i think see what's you know yeah to see what's stuck a developer you know they have to be brave they have to choose their theme and just throw everything at that and have the confidence that that's the way they're going to go rather yeah rather yeah. than just just everything in order to kind of encompass all tastes i want to ask you guys something what do you guys think of the people that are completely not for first person uh because i've seen a lot of comments being like we didn't ask for first person what do, what do you guys think about that because i'm sure you guys have seen comments like that i'm if, sure if I, if i'll answer that really quickly as someone who who has been very tunnel visioned in and, and really disliked first person games and i was already on the floor when they went away from fixed camera angle and i've never liked this halfway house of this over the shoulder i once mm. got slaughtered by Stu at biohaze for referring to resident evil 4 as a first person it's not third person for me when you're right up on the back like i say i didn't even notice it and that i think has everything to say not just uh, how strong and not unique but unique in terms of in, in a context of resident evil it felt very unique just it's been so long and it's felt like we haven't been in that survival horror genre for such a long time that I think yeah. things that are more important about a video game have come to the forefront for me, the gameplay, the narrative. And so I'm not interested in fighting my little third person perspective battle anymore if, if the game is going to be that playable. This is the thing I don't think a lot of people realize. They're not thinking about this in terms of the history of the series. Like, regardless of this idea of one, two, three, four, five, six, the franchise has had to reinvent itself because it gets old or it doesn't know where it's going. And that's the reason why we have so much, like, it doesn't know what it is anymore because it's been reinvented and spun off in so many different ways that someone has to take some sort of initiative to try and make something new with it or fix it yeah. or something. And, yeah. this, and this is what the resolve is. Why, why get pissy with that? It, it, at worst, it, they do one game in the style and people respond to it poorly. They go, okay, so next time we'll right just reinvent yep. it again and we just do it again. Like, it's not worth getting angry about. Like, <laughs> exactly. That's true. Yeah. I don't like first-person 
that much yeah. either. I mean, I don't mind shooters, but for mm-hmm. exploratory games, I like the idea of having a slightly setback camera. Some people prefer playing racing games in first person, and it's some just people a like having yeah. cameras. Well, it's a preference thing. Um, and we've talked about this about why a lot of people responded to Dead Day. Yeah, I was just, I was example, just thinking which about had the Dead option of first person and third person, depending on what the mechanics are. And I would play another game in that form where your shooting goes to first person and your exploring goes to the third. Yeah. The technology exists, and they've shown it with Lost in Nightmares, where you have the choice. For the style and the theme they've chosen for this game, there's never going to be a third-person option. It would probably not work for their intent. The one last thing, does anybody think that's Natalia on the cover Ferrari 7? I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, it's like the figure there. Yeah, the girl. I I, I think it could be. I actually loved, I really liked that time bomb living with Barry. It's brilliant. I don't. (laughs) You already know this. (laughs) It is cheesy, is it? It's cheesy. I'd rather they just didn't have killed off Alex Wesker and just left it. (laughs) Yeah. They just basically made little Alex Wesker. I don't don't think it's going to cover. I just, I think the idea that she would be able to escape and get away and start making mass experiments all over again in the small backwater southern bayou is um is quite implausible people like to bring a lot of stuff in and try to see like um maybe it could be this it could be that yeah they're, they're nothing new i can remember reading through pages of them in 1999 <laughs> as, wow. as clearly as i can remember reading them last week Sometimes great, sometimes outlandish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's always just as enjoyable. The thing is, though, sometimes the fan theories are better than... Cat yeah. Cat. yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. People have a lot more time to think about these than perhaps... Cat yes, they theory. do. <laughs>